what is the origin and source of these? Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. And today on the show, we have Christine also on the show. She's like, we should do a date night tonight. We should go to some expensive restaurant. I said, hey, I got a better idea. We should watch a show together. It'll be romantic and it'll inspire our love. And so uh, we're here tonight to watch uh, the very good show, the Nash, Kaiser, Hornrick, Enyart debate on theology. He's the king of romance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so uh, we are going to pull up this debate. Uh, that does not work. It that works a little bit better. <laughs> and so, so jumping into this debate, Mark Kaiser is uh, he's a, he's an abolished human abortion guy. You can see the poster in the background. And so uh, he has my kudos for that. It's it's masculine Christianity. It's not the effeminate type, and so so uh, I do got to give him props for that. He, the, this is not a bad debate to watch and to understand. They give all the generic arguments for uh, determinism, anti-open theist arguments, and so it's a good introduction to the counter arguments. It's generic. There's nothing new. There's nothing novel. They don't present anything that is a Google search away from open theism. And so it, it is a good introduction to it. I think uh, Dominique is pretty funny. Um, the host here, the gospel truth keeps calling Dominic. He keeps calling him Dominique and uh, he's never corrected. So the whole time he's Dominique, which is fantastic. Dominique and uh, our friend uh, Hornrick, Hornick, Hornrick, Hornick, I don't know if I'm saying these names right. It's hard. I don't know how to read sometimes. But uh, they present some novel arguments. I like how they use some imagery of cars, finding a blue car in a sea of red cars. So if someone has an argument that all cars are red, then uh, if you find one blue car, that defeats their all-encompassing statement. They're, they're, all cars can't be red if there exists one single blue car. Uh, it it's it's a defeater and so they focus on this imagery it's it's not reinforced in their closing statement maybe it is uh i just it's not memorable if it is but i do like how they were trying to frame the debate framing the debate's very important about a debate uh, here's how i will win here's how my opponents would win here's what to watch for this is this is what your opening statement needs to be used for framing the debate and then at the end your closing remarks need to go back to your frame and say, hey, I told you to watch for this. This is what they did. Um, I told you to look for these arguments. They didn't make these arguments. Uh, this is why I won the debate based on the things that I said would happen. Uh, it, Brandon writes, they didn't even speak about the debate resolution. They just threw smoke screens about God's knowledge. Yes. And that's why you do need to call them out fairly clearly, uh, continually. The Will Duffy when if you've seen the will duffy debate with matt slick mm -hmm. yeah where he's just uh, he just continually asks them the same question over and over until it gets really painful <laughs> that uh, matt slick doesn't want to answer and so some of that was going on in the cross exam i noticed it's like they're like oh I have everything that god says will happen does happen and then okay, wait. And, 
have you already seen this? I, I watched <laughs> the debate. So I, I didn't oh. watch it live. I was there at the beginning, mm-hmm. but I had to bail out early because I had I some. We were in this together. going blind. We are in this together, but <laughs> okay. sometimes my wife takes a long time and I got a lot of free time. Okay. And so, no, this is not a blind watch. Okay, okay. It for is me, for you. It is, it is for, for me, you yeah. a blind watch, but not for me. Okay. I got foreknowledge of what is going to happen. <laughs> Surprised you here. But uh, yeah, so in the cross exam, he just keeps hitting him over and over. God said this would happen. Did this happen? It's like a yes or no question. And it's like they have to painfully admit over and over <laughs> on tape in front of a live audience. <laughs> Over and over that God, things God said will happen, do not, uh, do not materialize, right? They don't come to fruition. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start. You guys begin right. speak. Excellent. Thanks so much. So thanks, Marlon. Thanks, Dominic and Bo. We hope tonight will be fruitful. And it's, re- it's a really important debate. It'll be concerning the, the very nature of God himself. So we hope it's enlightening, uplifting, and it brings us closer to the truth as revealed in sacred scripture. So the topic is, does the Bible teach that the future is eternally settled? And Tony and I will be arguing the affirmative, hence why we're going first. Our intention in tonight's debate is not necessarily to define how God knows. Uh, Just something about the technical presentation. You'll see Merrick, his lips, they don't line up with what's being said. Like, this is a technical problem. It seems to be on the host side. So... Like he gets done speaking, his opening round, and then Tony starts speaking, and then both their mouths are moving at the same time. It's a, it's a very, it's, it's not their fault. It's, it is whatever software the gospel truth is using is not syncing up. He does, he does not use StreamYard, which probably could have solved this issue, but whatever he was using, something internally in that software needed to be reset in order to get this debate back on track, which it eventually does. But you'll see this weird, weird shadow lipping thing going on was everything in the future we only affirm that god does in fact possess perfect exhaustive foreknowledge as such for tonight's debate we are willing to defend many possible theories for grounding how god knows the future perfectly you know determinism molinism simple foreknowledge whatever we intend to demonstrate that the bible teaches that god possesses this knowledge albeit without getting exactly into how and in what particular ways this is the case or exactly how the future is eternally settled with some of the philosophical things we're not going to focus on. We will argue that omniscience entails an exhaustive knowledge of the past, present, and future. Indeed, all things possible and actual are perfectly known by God. We will defend this position in contrast to the open theist view, which argues that God is not truly omniscient, at least not in the classical sense. Indeed, many open theists argue that God cannot truly know the future as certain. Okay, so I'm going to rewind just a little bit to see what what they're not debating. He gives a little list of these are things we're not going to talk about, and it's kind of telling. And especially when he moves on to this classical omniscience. Future, we only affirm that God does, in fact, possess perfect. That was it. All right. Mr. Tony Nash and uh, we'll just start over first. And so I will start your time when you guys begin to speak. Excellent. Thanks so much. So thanks, Marlon. Thanks, Dominic and Bo. We hope tonight will be fruitful. And it's a really important debate. It'll be concerning the, the very nature of God himself. So we hope it's enlightening, uplifting, and it brings us closer to the truth as revealed in sacred scripture. So the topic is, does the Bible teach that the future is eternally settled? And Tony and I will be 
arguing the affirmative, hence why we're going first. Our intention in tonight's debate is not necessarily to define how God knows everything in the future. Okay, so right there, they say, our intention tonight is not to define how God knows everything. And then he goes on to say, we affirm classical omniscience. Oh, they're never called on this. So classical omniscience affirms that God's knowledge is immediate of all, all, all everything. It's uh, simple without parts. It's not broken down into predicates. God doesn't know one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four, because those are, those are parts, right? It's, it's an eternal, simple knowledge. It's ungenerated knowledge. God just has this knowledge in himself. It's not based on the outside world. It's not like the thing exists for him to gain the knowledge from yeah, innate knowledge, eternal knowledge, exhaustive knowledge, knowledge that's unfalsifiable. So let's say, let's say I know I'm going to work tomorrow. Would it, would would you ever, if I'm in a conversation with you and I say, hey, I know I'm going to go to work tomorrow, so I'll get the taxes done then or something like that when I'm at work. Would you stop me and would you be like? You don't know that. You might get in a car accident. The meteor yeah. might hit your car. You don't know. <laughs> no, I would not be like that. <laughs> yeah, so it's so like normal people just talk about knowledge of the future, and it's a falsifiable knowledge. It's like, if it doesn't happen, it's like, well, did I know that? Well, not really. But if it does happen, it's like, yeah, I definitely knew that. It's like an ex post facto uh, understanding of what it means to have knowledge. Knowledge is not defined in this debate. They, they don't go over what it means to have knowledge because that would be also critically refute their position. Because if God gains knowledge, that doesn't mean that that means the entire future is open. If God is gaining knowledge, um, well, that, that's a gain of knowledge to God. That's that's something additional that he didn't have before. It's that's an open future. He's he's changing his knowledge set is it, it, using the standard definition of omniscience right and so it's a defeater for the position they just they don't want to talk about these points and so they instead want to talk about other things uh, we'll get into what they want to talk about sure we only affirm that god does in fact possess perfect exhaustive foreknowledge as such for tonight's debate we are willing to defend many possible so, so this merrick guy like before the debate he told his uh opponents he he private messaged them he, he talks about this later and he said you guys should not be debating this. This is a blasphemous towards God or something like that. He believes everything is predestined by God for God's greatest glory. He's a Calvinist. Well, then God predestined the blasphemy. Yeah, God predestined the blasphemy. It's like uh, he doesn't actually believe. No Calvinist right. actually believes Calvinism. They don't act like it. They don't even pretend to act like it. They <laughs> Remember when we're getting kicked out of the church? And, and he's like, how can... He said, how can you come to our church if we if we disagree so much on theology? I said, well, you tend to preach verse by verse, yeah. which filters out most of your theology. Yep. And he was just sitting there and he's just like, look at us. He's he doesn't just... have a response. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Oh, yep. <laughs> Theories for grounding how God knows the future perfectly. You know, determinism, Molinism, simple foreknowledge, whatever. We intend to demonstrate that the Bible teaches that God possesses this knowledge, albeit without getting exactly into how and in what particular ways this is the case or exactly how the future is eternally settled with some of the philosophical things we're not going to focus on. 
And so Roddy writes, they they just make a statement about God and touch blue, make it true. So it's just assertions without evidence. No backies or erases. It's funny. I was dealing with a Calvinist about Romans 9. And I asked him, is it your assertion that Paul is writing and Paul is a determinist and his, his audience believes in free will? And this is his defense of determinism? Do you think that that's what's going on here? That this is the point in contention and Paul is arguing against free will? He didn't want to answer that because it's, it's obvious that that's not the contention at all. They have a shared value system underneath. And if you're going to be a determinist and argue against free willers, your argument's going to be completely different at all. And so it, the arguments in Roman 9 is about people who share foundational theologies of We'll, we'll say metaphysics, a free will, and how God operates in that span. A lot of times, uh, these guys even will just equate like God doing something. Oh, this means uh, God knowing something. That means God does it. God has eternal knowledge of all things. It's just assertion. Th these, these proof texts of theirs are not proof texts. They're just talking points. It's like, I have a verse. Here's what I think it means. I, I, I describe what I think it means. Therefore, it means the thing I say. And so they don't entertain other possibilities because they don't actually have proof text. So they'll they'll turn to maybe King David talking about a fetology in the womb. It's like before I was uh, formed in the womb, you saw my unformed substance before the days uh, were allotted to me. You knew them. It's like he knew the days of fetology. They didn't even they weren't even familiar with that. And I think the open theist side erred very greatly in not pointing out that Calvin's own reading of that scripture, that verse, was that it's about fetology and not about some predetermination of all days. That is John Calvin's own commentary on that. And so it's 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 a, it's a, it's a valid reading. It, it's a reading that doesn't affirm their narrative. They need a better proof text. Maybe that verse means Calvinism, but there's a different there's a different alternative. It can't be your proof text if there's valid competing alternatives you're not proving anything it's just a talking point at that point we will argue that omniscience entails an exhaustive knowledge of the past present and future indeed all things possible and actual are perfectly known what? by god if you want to say something we will defend this stop. position I'll, in contrast to the open okay. <laughs> theist view which argues that god is not truly omniscient at least not in the classical sense indeed many open theists argue that god cannot truly know the future as certain but rather as a possibility to begin, we'd like to lay the groundwork for the concept of omniscience in the scriptures. And then from that, we'll demonstrate how the Bible lays out and sort of includes this knowledge in the future as well. First off, scripture explicitly teaches that God knows all things. John 21, 17, 1 John 3, 20. And so God knows all things. Are you convinced? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He convinced me. <laughs> yeah. So God knows all things. Uh, first of all, there's a verse that says God knows all things. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he knows all things past, present, and future to the most minute detail. What rocks in underwater caverns are going to collapse on whatever dates in the future? Um, <laughs> Bob Enyart, uh, Dominique's dad, gives an example of God has tracked every single atom from every single piece of toilet paper flushed down the toilet for all eternity. That That's, that's I guess, the idea. That's... I, I don't think that that's what they mean in the Bible when this language is used, because pretty similar language is used about mankind even 
Calvinists will read that like a normal person. But when there's a statement about God, it becomes a talking point. So they can't read those verses like a normal person would read those verse. They have to like super spiritualize it and stamp it with Calvinism. It's like, <laughs> they're like, hey, hey guys, come over here. Look at this verse. They all crowd around. And they're like, oh, wow, this verse kind of says something that we could talk about. Yeah, this that's our proof text. Okay, everybody, get the word out. <laughs> talk about um, omniscience. When this verse says God knows all things, quick, spread the word. That's our, that's our talking point. And lots of Bible citations. If you want the index, I wasn't able to make slides in time. Just let me know. Uh, this entails God knowing our hearts, thoughts, intentions, and all things currently happening. Psalm 139, Hebrews 4, Job 24. A very familiar text, Ezekiel 11, right? God is intimately in control of all natural weather events. Okay, so one debate strategy that they're doing is uh, throwing out a bunch of proof texts. Like, uh, make an assertion, throw out a bunch of proof texts, which would be okay if the proof texts said anything about what they're claiming. So uh, it, it's a it's a debate strategy. You flood you flood the debate with proofs and evidences and arguments, and then in the rebuttals and responses there's not enough time to go over every single proof text. But a good rule of thumb to deal with this type of shotgun strategy is I always say, and I'll, I'll tell people in debates, it's like if they do this and they throw out like a uh, hundred different verses or something like that, uh, just take the first one they offer because uh, presumably the first one they offer is going to be their best piece of evidence. Turn to it. And uh, if it doesn't say what they're claiming, it says you could just dismiss everything else. Um, because it, what, what's, what's the, what's the chances that their first proof text uh, is not, not going to say their thing. And then the second proof text will it's, it, it's just a waste of time. It's like shotgun proof texting. Uh, you turn the first, first proof, that proof text, God knows everything. Well, the Bible says man knows everything. Man had perfect knowledge from the beginning. Uh, man, uh, foreknew Paul from the beginning. Uh, it, it says that uh, we have all knowledge. We will be given all knowledge that uh, the king of Tyre had, have, has all knowledge of the heart. Things like this, that it, it's it's just common language. There's nothing within that phrase that means they their theology is right and our theology is wrong. It's a talking point. It's not a proof text. It doesn't, doesn't prove. There's no connection to what they're claiming. It's just assertion without, without evidence. So what is their response when you say that to them? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the typical response is, is, uh, well, this is about God. And so since the subject is God, it's, it's talking about these God making properties. And so we can't read them <laughs> it like we would read with right. man. So it, it's a, it's a double standard. It's special pleading. Like how everything is in anthropomorphism. <laughs> yeah. So basically their response is you have to be a Calvinist and understand that these texts are talking about Calvinists, Calvinism before you come to these texts. That that is that is the counter argument, and you'll hear them do that. They'll they'll try to dismiss any unfavorable text as an anthropomorphism, yeah. which they claim is a figure of speech. Uh, an anthropomorphism is not a figure of speech. It's a framing device for fiction. Back in Augustine's days, he talks about the anthropomorphs. These are not people who who uh, uh, affirm some sort of figure of speech and anthropomorphism. These are people who believe that God has a body. Anthropomorphs in the ancient world believed God had a body. Anthropomorphism is a modern term uh, meant to describe modern framing of fiction 
was not a term back then. It's 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 not a valid way to read the Bible as anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Ever seen Brave Little Toaster? Yeah. 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 He's he's got the little cape and he's jumping uh-huh. and there's a lamp and the lamp lamp is sad and he's gonna get crushed and the, the lamp is very afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a thing. So <laughs> it's it's not yeah, a biblical. That's like the the go to answer for everything is anthropomorphism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you might find an anthropomorphism like if it says the mountains weep or something right. like that. Uh, that's that's anthropomorphic, <laughs> ascribing human qualities to non-human things. But there's still conceptual overlap. That's one thing that uh, Calvinists don't do is they don't describe what that conceptual overlap is. Oh, we were just uh, just the other day we're reviewing that atheist, and T- Tyler Vela is saying everything is uh, some sort of anthropomorphism, and he's like, "What's what's the conceptual overlap? If if all of God's language is analogical, what what what, what does it mean? Where where is there a connection? You, you don't actually believe the things you're saying. You don't believe it's analogous." You don't believe there's conceptual overlap. You don't think it's a figure of speech. You just believe it's completely removed. And so they define anthropomorphism as describing God in a way which makes sense for the historical events which occur. And so if there's a process change of God having a pre-flood world to destroying the world, they say the anthropomorphism is just describing that process change that God repented. And so it kind of looks like repentance. And so that's why they're saying that repentance happens. It's like, why, why are they saying it? What, what, what is going on? What's being communicated? Anthropomorphisms are, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, figures of speech are used typically to communicate something of value, to give some, some, something of value to the person listening. Analogies, where you take two conceptual domains overlap in a way that you could apply the concepts from one to the other. So when God is a father, we know what a father is. Father's loving, fathers gives gives hugs, they're protecting, they're nurturing, they provide for their family. God is a father in that conceptually in those domains, he fills those roles. We could take something we know about and apply it to something we don't know about. That's, that's how analogies work. But they, they'll de- deny this category of speaking altogether with God. So we're, we're probably one minute into this guy. So we'll let him talk. <laughs> it is he that gave to the wind its weight, Job 28. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Glorious text. That's Psalm 50. No sparrows fall from the ground, but from permission of the father, even you, dear listener. What, one of the things they do, uh, like their cross examination, they conflate God counting hairs on our head, which is God acquiring knowledge. It wasn't pointed out by uh, the open theist that God counting is God acquiring knowledge. So if God counts our hairs, uh, open theism is true. Yeah. Yeah. So he conflates this with the sparrow verse and he's like, um, not one hair of your head falls to the ground apart from the father, like apart from the father's control. It's like, ah, that's okay. You're taking two different verses and like flipping the concept the actual verse in Greek about the sparrows is no sparrow falls. And then there's like uh, inserted words. So in your English Bibles, they're going to be italicized. It says apart from God. So apart from what? And some some versions say like his power, like he controls when the sparrows fall. And some versions are about his knowledge. It's like God knows when these sparrows are dying. And so uh, Merrick, and he probably, he doesn't know the intricacies of this verse. I don't, I don't actually think that they 
they understand have done a very good survey over their own proof text. I don't think they understand the material, the source material. They don't know what they're quoting. They don't know the context of it. So he probably is not in detail on the intricacies of, of his proof text about even the sparrows. God has numbered all the hairs on your head, Matthew 10. These verses clearly entail. Yeah, like, like his arguments, like God, every bald guy, God directly controlled making that guy bald. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Merrick, uh, he's he's getting older. Maybe he's seen some hair fall and he's like, <laughs> no, so my hair's falling. Maybe he's like, hey, hey, Chris, you're balding. You're, you're going to be bald. God did that to you. It's out of your hands. <laughs> maybe he's like, I think this is God's will for my life. If you use Rogaine, it's like you're countering God's will. You're trying to fight God. <laughs> you put some hair product in. Oh, yeah. Bob Enyart, he used to do the thing where it's like everyone, there's like songs like God controls where every lightning bolt goes. Mm -hmm. And there's that ranger who has struck like 14 <laughs> times. <laughs> but uh, Bob Enyart's thing was like, yeah, God was just controlling where all those lightning bolts would go until lightning rods were invented. Then he just decided yeah. to start targeting, targeting lightning rods. Lightning. <laughs> oh, <players. laughs> that park ranger. That must like, be what happened. Yeah. Like 14 times you get, you get hit by lightning. Tell that God at the very least possesses perfect exhaustive knowledge of all things in the past and the present. Now with this groundwork in place, we'd like to move from this towards our positive thesis that God does indeed know the future perfectly. And so we're going to have seven arguments. First, God is said to declare the end from the beginning. Truly, knowing all things entails knowing all possibilities and possible outcomes of this decree. All right. So if you heard the phrase, God declares the end from the beginning, are you going to walk away from this and say, oh, yeah, that means... God has exhaustive knowledge of uh, all future things, including every single uh, monkey uh, banging rocks together in the future. <laughs> like, I don't know, That's like anything, answer. anything like every single destroyed bathroom at Taco Bell. <laughs> Are you going to walk away? Like you hear that? It says um, God declares. That was God's will. God, God, God declares the end from the beginning. Yeah. It's like, whoa, man, God's destroying all those Taco Bell bathrooms. What does he have against Taco Bell? Oh, yeah, one of my memes <laughs> I was very proud of is I, uh, I didn't, I didn't publish it anywhere, but I sent it to some friends. It's like one of these Ukrainian generals talking to his men as like uh, me before Taco Tuesday, explaining to my rolls of toilet paper that not all of them are going to make it through till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> but uh yeah I, I, so i think there's a non sequitur here i think i think we're seeing some sort of weird weird uh talking point rather than a proof text this means he knows all consequences perfectly by creating this world god god declares the end from the beginning so he knows all consequences perfectly so does god declare all things who's god declaring to they, they, this, this argument, uh, relies on some sort of, it's predicated on some sort of voidless declaration to nobody. That's just like eternal. And it's just like, 
It's him just making the world and all things in it. That's what it means by God declaring. That's 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 not typically what declaring things is. Usually you declare things to people. There's reasons to talk to people, the reasons to declare things to people. You declare bankruptcy. That means you're making it known. You're going bankrupt. Your, your declarations to people. And God within the context is like, I declare to you. So it's 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 a non sequitur, is what it is. World. The scripture and notice how much time they spend on each of their proof texts. Like almost nothing. They know nothing of the context of their own proof texts. They they do nothing to show that anything within the context of their proof texts supports the reading that they're getting from that proof text. So like an open theist might spend uh, 10, 15 minutes going over Exodus 32. Uh, it, you know, it's because we really care about the context of the proof text because it supports the open theist view. They got talking points. They don't want to talk about the context. They don't know the context. Sure affirms this view in Isaiah 46, 10. God alone can tell us what will happen before it happens, Isaiah 42, 9. He contrasts that the, the nature of the false gods in Isaiah that only he can exhaustively predict the future. That's in Isaiah 41. God determines and knows all of our days and our last breath, again, in Job and the Psalms. Okay, so if if I, let, let's let's take their logic and their, their thinking. Uh, let's, let's apply it to ourselves. So if I said, <clears throat> I'm from God and I'm going to prophesy to you um, from God, He's, he told me what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to go to work tomorrow morning. And then when I get home from work tomorrow morning, what, what are you, are you going to be like? He was right. Yeah. That, that, that man is a prophet, He's a prophet from God. He predicted the future. He predicted the future. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, it's not like. Like you can know things from the future without knowing. Right. And so the, there, there is a yeah. phrase that says, you'll know a true pop prophet if, if the things come true. But you, you still have to apply common sense right. to everything. It's not like these rules are hard and fast. It's not like now you're going to think that I'm sort of some sort of like Joseph hey, Smith. Chris, I'm going to go to bed tonight. <laughs> it's, it's a prophecy. <laughs> if it comes true, if it you comes have true, the you word know. of God. It's it's not like, like I'm Joseph Smith if that comes true and I should be like some sort of prophet or something. It's like you, you need to apply just a little bit of common sense to the things that are said in the Bible. They're like... You need to execute false prophets. Oh, except for like Jonah, because uh, there are some sort of implied conditionals. So it didn't happen, but we don't execute him. But if any open theist says a different prophecy, is it going to happen? I don't know. It's yeah. it's complete double standard. They, they don't have standards. God also knows the day and the hour in which Christ will return. That famous text in Matthew 24. But Jesus doesn't. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus does not know the day and hour. And then they'll use quotes by Jesus, people saying that Jesus knows everything. And then they'll say, oh, look at this. There's some guy came to Jesus. There's there's a guy in, in a narrative. And he walked up to Jesus and he said, Lord, you know all things. And so <laughs> everyone listening in is like, wow, he knows like every, it's something that will happen two million years into the future. <laughs> Yeah. How much toilets will be flushed simultaneously <laughs> at this particular minute, 2,000 years into the... I don't know. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's what they're going for. As such, these passages clearly show the future does clearly. exist, at least in the mind of God. Second argument. God himself declares particular instances of his exhaustive foreknowledge in the scriptures. 
Here are a few instances. God foretells the existence of Josiah and the acts he will perform, 1 Kings 13. And so this is actually one that they should have, they should have taken like a bigger section of their opening statement to talk about the Josiah. Because Josiah is a king and he's predicted uh, like decades before he's born. And so they might actually have some sort of case that they could build about some sort of type of knowledge of the future but uh what's an open theist response okay so so let's let's pretend you're an open theist and someone comes to you and says there's this bible passage (laughs) there's this bible passage in which god says there's going to be a certain king decades into the future and he might do these certain things what's your response what do you mean like you, so you're the in the, in this scenario you're the open theist okay. and someone's arguing against you and they say hey open theist open theism is false because there's a bible passage which predicts a king's birth 20 years or more before the guy's actually born like we don't know if it's actually going to happen oh yeah so that's one 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 response is it might not happen sometimes things are said in the bible that just don't materialize God said, oh, I was expecting you guys to repent. You didn't repent. Here's the consequences. So that's one response is not everything materializes. So you're not actually making a point that's like it has any validity. A second point maybe is God could do it. God can make it happen. We have examples of God naming babies within the Bible, right? John the Baptist, his, his dad's like, I don't know if I'm going to name him John the Baptist. And he gets mute until he's forced to name his kid what God wanted to him to name him mm-hmm. like like we have examples of god being coercive like uh jo- <laughs> jonah didn't want to prophesy and <laughs> so he's like i gotta run away i gotta get on this boat and i gotta hightail it out of here uh because he's not a calvinist jova jonah wasn't a calvinist it's like i'm gonna I run away from god and then god had to coerce him physically basically like you're gonna you're gonna live a miserable existence if you don't do this. Uh, you, I'm just gonna torture you. It's like so, like take it or leave it. And then he takes it, but he's all bitter about it the whole time. He describes what the Egyptian and Chaldean armies will do in the future. Jeremiah 37. In Daniel 11, God describes the future Antichrist or man of lawlessness. Also, Second Thessalonians 2. Indeed, Jesus predicts Peter's threefold denial in Matthew 26 as well. Yeah, so uh, Jesus says to Peter, he says, uh, you'll deny me three times. And uh, what if the text said, Peter heard that and he's like, oh, no, Lord, I repent. I know I'm sinful. Uh, You're right. And then it never happens. What would you, if you're a Christian or in this scenario, you're a Christian, you're reading your Bible, you get to that passage, like, Jesus's prophecy failed. I'm throwing this book in the trash. Yeah, I don't know how you uh, contend with you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's like, so what's the counterfactual? What if it doesn't happen? Um, what, what would happen is Calvinists like Merrick Kaiser and Tony Nash will be would be explaining to us how this was a conditional prophecy like Jonah. But since it did occur, now they insist... It couldn't have been otherwise or else everything would fail. Everything would fall apart. Our religion would be trash. Um, We'd we'd just scrap Christianity. You open theists, you guys, you guys think that this could have been falsified. You are just the scum of the earth. (laughs) It it wouldn't be a big deal if it failed. Yeah, It, It just... 
You just move on and be like, okay. Make the Bible say what you want it to mean. Be like, oh, this is like one of those conditional yeah. prophecies right. where, where Jesus warns someone about what's going to happen and then they take action to avert it. Okay. And everyone, everyone would read the Bible like normal. <laughs> well, this is repentance. See Luke 22. Third, general prophecy in scripture lends to the idea that the future is known to God. Prophecies in the scripture often detail the future. Yeah, it's it's typically prophecy is made to fail. Uh, God pronounces judgment against a nation. He doesn't want to punish these people. He, he wants the prophecy to fail. He wants them to repent and then him to not punish them. So generally, prophecy should be seen as an open theistic tool to affect changes and to coerce people into actions rather than it's not crystal ball. So it's it's not like uh, you're watching. Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and the witch is looking into her crystal ball and she could see things. It's like, ha ha ha. I know where these people are. I know what's happening. It's not a movie of the future that God's looking to. It's it's God telling him, hey, I'm going to destroy you guys. So here's what happens. Okay. Uh, there's a wicked nation and God's like, hey, I'm going to destroy you. And then 2000 years later, this this was recorded and then someone's reading it. It's like, man, God must have omniscience of all things past, present and future. <laughs> Look at this. They stayed wicked and they were destroyed. Oh. His knowledge turned out to be correct. As, well, he wasn't that, trying to influence them yeah, with their, his warnings. Wow, this was a pretty... He, how would he know that? How How does... Well, there's no explanation except for classical omniscience. His knowledge must be like ungenerated and innate and unfalsifiable. It's like There's literally a verse that says, I will go down and see if the cries are true yeah right yeah basically it's like god's getting uh brought information and he goes to verify right uh but they don't, they don't like these verses right. the holy spirit is moving the authors authors to say their prophetic word god already knows how these events will play out in years advance this proves the future is set there are many examples of future tense prophecy in the holy writ However, for debate purposes, we will narrow the field to human acts. Our opponents acknowledge that God himself is an actor in history. As such, we will focus on the future acts of human beings, thereby proving God knows future um, contingents. For instance, the suffering, the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah 53 is put to death. He is mocked. And, and this shows that God already knows how people will treat Christ, our Lord. We see another prophecy. Uh, that's that's oh, interesting. Uh, so Isaiah 53 is the classic, uh, quote unquote, Jesus prophecy. But it's not it's not at all clear that it's talking about a future messianic figure, although that's the way it was taken in Second Temple literature. Um, the immediate context identifies like righteous Israel as the suffering servant. And so it's it's not it's not a prophecy in the way that he's claiming exactly how he's claiming. So I, I think there might be a general misunderstanding about how prophecy functions in general within the Bible. And this leads to these types of arguments. Let's see in Daniel 2, 45, where Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. In this dream, specific details about future kingdoms are explicated. And yet none of this is said as a probability or as a statement of falsifiable knowledge. Instead, Daniel himself says that this interpretation is certain because it comes from God's revelation. 
Fulfilled prophecies fill the New Testament as well. Jesus and the apostles point these out copiously in their sermons and writings. Our Lord claims that Isaiah prophesied the vain worship of the Pharisees, Matthew 15. Jesus predicts the, that Judas would betray him also, and he claims that Judas was his betrayal was prophesied and thus must be fulfilled. If, Jesus, if Judas never betrayed uh, Jesus, there's no Old Testament passage that the atheist would turn to and say, look at this, this prophecy was never fulfilled. There, there's no text that exists like that that would lead to that fulfillment. That is not how the New Testament authors are using the word fulfilled. Instead, they're using it as cyclic. This, this event mirrors a previous event that has similar language that kind of is fitting to this situation. It's not what he's claiming. Uh, you can't turn to, I wish he would turn to that passage and read it. And then we, we just like, I, I don't think that says what you're saying, dude. I just, that's not a prophecy. Yeah, see John 13. Peter also claims that the scriptures foretell the betrayal and replacement of Judas. Think of, you know, an Acts with Matthias and Justice. The prophecy, quote, had to be fulfilled, Acts 1. Okay, all, all these all these proofs he's throwing out here um, is to show that God has the future eternally, exhaustively settled. Are you convinced Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him? No. <laughs> uh, eternal... <laughs> eternal fixed future J jesus knew one of his companions who, who he hung out with a lot was was a bad guy he has not laid the groundwork for that okay <laughs> no. uh oh our Renick's asking me about timelessness I, I would point you to the will duffy debate about timelessness in which he points out there's just no biblical evidence for it so it's not a biblical concept no one in the bible thought timelessness was a thing it wasn't a speck within their worldview that they could even address it's there there's like not a counter argument to it even because it's it's not it's not part of their worldview it doesn't make sense right and so timelessness is a non-entity it's not something we can conceptualize that there's some sort of being and some sort of state of timelessness that's nothingness it's it's indistinguishable from nothingness it's just not a thing and so they they have to show that it's even conceptual for something to be timeless it's not Jesus predicts also the destruction of the second temple, which happened in 70 AD. Fourth, in Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, God gives a test for whether... I was uh, I was telling my kids about a second Jesus. There, there's another Jesus, um, because Jesus is the Greek term for the Jewish uh, Joshua. And so a lot, of kid, a lot of people in Israel, they're like, oh, there's a famous guy, Joshua. They'll name their kids Jesus. And uh, so there's a different Jesus prophesying also the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's eventually killed. It's either 70 AD or 130 AD. I said Josephus, so it's got to be the 70 AD instance. He's killed by a Roman catapult at the walls of Jerusalem. So I, based on his argument here that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, I would not say that this random Jesus that also predicted the downfall of Jerusalem and the temple. I wouldn't say that that's evidence for exhaustive of uh, the future. It's just like a common thing that was, was being predicted. I don't, I don't think it, it evidences what he's trying to claim, even if it does happen. Your prophet is genuinely from him or not. God tells us, and you're probably familiar with this text, that if a prophet claims to be of God and states that a prophecy, which does not occur or come to pass, then we will know he was speaking presumptuously. Such a one is a false prophet. 
However, many open theists will argue that God has unequivocally stated things that failed to happen. Uh, not not only us, but they do in the counter-examination. <laughs> okay, so this is where this false prophet, true prophet things comes in. Like, I could give you a ton of prophecies that come true. It, it doesn't prove that I'm coming from God. You just have to actually apply common sense to these rules. These are tests. So it's like practical. And so if, if you encounter someone in your real life, because of these texts that he's quoting, they're actually meant to be guideposts for people on how to deal with other people at the time that they exist. If there's a guy claiming that he's a prophet from God and he's saying things and those things aren't turning out, he's, he's probably not a prophet. Yeah. But if it's Jonah, uh, the, the king's not going to kill Jonah. It's like the thing which you said did not come true. And so therefore you're a false prophet. We're going to kill you because you understand there's there's a reason why it didn't come true. You, you apply common sense. Th these rules are not like rules in a vacuum. It's not like I'm I'm suddenly a prophet from God if I predict when I'm going to go to bed every night or something like that. Yeah, common sense is lacking. They're they're treating the Bible in a way as a document, not of not of the type of document that the Bible's written. It's written as a practical manual to people for practical concerns, helping them uh, guide their life to do the right things, to act in the right ways, gives them ceremonial law. It's not a metaphysics textbook. It's not giving them uh, things that are inflexible and don't make sense. You apply common sense to these things and it's it's not a wooden wooden rule. And so it's it's really weird. Uh, again, these these guys don't believe the, the claims that they're making. So if I if I predicted myself going to work for the next week every single day every single night and it came true, they're not going to say that I'm I have some sort of communication with God and I'm a true prophet or anything like that, and they're not going to claim Jonah was a false prophet. That's not what they're going to do. They themselves don't believe the arguments that they're making. They don't believe them. Calvinists do not believe their own theology. This is rhetoric. This is them trying to convince people using words that they themselves do not believe. If this is true, however, then God spoke with presumption and rashness, a false prophet by his own criteria. We hope our opponents will reject this conclusion. Okay, number five, another clear argument to show God does know the future is his knowledge of counterfactuals and the truth value of such hypothetical scenarios. Okay, so now they're going to say that counterfactuals are real things. They believe the entire future is predetermined. That's been timelessly predetermined. But they're also going to argue that everything has counterfactuals. Things could have been the case in other situations, even though they don't believe that those situations could ever have materialized ever. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So... Everything is fated to happen. It always has been. Uh, the future's never been open. But they're going to claim that God knows what would happen if other things did happen. But those things can't happen. There's there's not a chance. Yeah. So I, I asked this once. I said, if something has a 0% chance of happening, is it possible for that thing to happen? Is it a possibility? Is it possible for a thing to happen if it has 0% chance of happening? What was the answer? Well, the answer that a Calvinist said is, you have to be an open theist to believe that. 
hilarious. And so th they'll claim that certain things had a 0% <laughs> chance of attaining, but those things are still a possibility. Mm. And their argument is because we can imagine in our head those things happening. Uh, but then they'll say, oh, God is necessary, though. And then the atheist will say, but I can imagine God not existing. And then they'll say, well, you're imagining wrong because that's not possible that he doesn't <laughs> exist. So it, it's like a, just a de facto assertion that their model of the universe makes sense, is, is internally consistent. They're not special pleading. And they're just not making things up on the spot. And so that's what Merrick Kaiser does. Uh, he, he just makes up this ad hoc model with ad hoc categories. It just pretends that they're true. I'll deliver a few clear instances here. The first is in 1 Samuel 23, when David uses an ephod to determine certain events that may play out in the future. David then inquires with God through the use of this device about what the outcome would be if he would have remained in Kaliah. And when God tells him what the men of Kaliah and Saul would do if he stayed and caused David to leave. Another passage showing that God knows the outcomes of different scenarios is Matthew 11, where Jesus says, if, if the mighty works done in Chorazin and Bethsaida happened in Tyre and Sidon, those people already would have repented. The argument from God having knowledge of counterfactuals to him having certainty. So they believe the whole future is determined. And uh, now they're talking about God knowing branching possibilities. So th there's an internal conflict within their worldview that's pointed out. It's probably not the best to, to focus on that in a debate. You might be wasting some of your time because you're going to lose like 90% of your audience. But uh, just point out, yeah, you, you believe there's branching possibilities that, that the future is open. That's open theism. You're open theist. Congratulations. Debate's the knowledge over. of the future is clear. You want to debate's over. The debate's <laughs> over. Uh, we can all go home. Thanks for affirming our position. If God can know what people would do in hypothetical scenarios that will not occur, then how much more would God know what they will do? Calvinists don't actually typically affirm this. Um, so if you read John MacArthur's Systematic Theology, he'll say that God doesn't know um, these alternative scenarios because th those are things that just won't materialize. They, they won't attain. And so God doesn't know nothings. Do and what they would do in scenarios which will occur given that God knows all things presently. The future is eternally settled. Number six, our next set of arguments is from the Bible's teaching on predestination and foreknowledge, which sort of presupposes God having future knowledge of the future, right? Scripture declares that God has predestined or foreordained individuals to salvation, Ephesians 1, Romans. Over here in the chat, we got Idol Killer. It's an Idol Killer Inception. He's over here in this chat, and he's in our chat as well. Hello, Warren. Save these hotly debated texts on soteriology, which we're not going to get into. As well as events such as the crucifixion of... Yeah, Warren's got a bunch of little daughters, and they're all cuties. I'm like, maybe I should try to hook my boys up with those daughters. <laughs> Christ himself, Acts 2, Acts 4. We also have texts declaring that God has foreknowledge, meaning knowing things that will occur beforehand, such as God foreknowing who the elect are. We also take from the analogy of, of Romans 8.29 that those whom he foreknew, he predestined and also apply that right to ephesians 1 showing that god foreknew individuals he would predestine before the yeah um the calvinists are right um what's the guy's name uh there's paul washer paul washer paul washer's right when he talks about what foreknowledge actually means it's not about an intellectual proposition that you have access to before the current situation it's actually about 
a prior a prior relationship. Uh, the Jews foreknew Paul. That means they knew had a relationship with him in the past, such that they know his character. And so when it when the Bible talks about Jesus being foreknew foreknown, that means he had a relationship with God the Father somewhere in the past. When it talks about Christians being foreknown, that means within their own lifetime, they've had a relationship with God, and that's that that kicks off this this chain. What the Calvinist does is they hijack language and they say, hey. This language kind of sounds like what we believe. And so this foreknowledge is like, it's eternal. It never started anywhere. It's not even really foreknowledge because that would be inaccurate because God is timeless. So there's there's no real foreknowledge. But what it's talking about is God eternally knowing things from an eternal now perspective of all people who would ever... That's not, it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about God has a relationship with people here and now. And based on that, he makes decisions for their lives here and now. It's not about this eternal predestination. And even, even the, the word that's commonly uh, translated as predestined within the Bible functions the same way. God, at some period of time in the past, typically the time period that's being talked about, made a decision. That, you know, the Jews predestined an answer to Jesus when asked about who their blood relationship was. That just means they specified something. When they were talking to Jesus about that, at that time in the past that we're currently talking about, people get this all wrong. They always say, oh, predestination is is uh, it's telling something in, in advance or making destining something in advance. And foreknowledge is always having knowledge of something before it happened. That's, that's, that's not what's going on. Maybe later, maybe later, once uh, things start getting theological, but within the Bible, there's there's no instances of that within Within all the early literature, that's not how these words are being used. Foundation of the world, which demonstrates that this knowledge of the elect is not gained by God in time, but rather is prior even to the creation. <laughs> Idol Killer says, my daughters will be dating when they're old and barren. Weird. It's a weird flex wanting your line to die. Foundation of the world. Aww. Similar lamp slaying from the foundation of the world, right? <laughs> However, this cannot reconcile with the view of our opponents, which suggests, suggests that God can't have perfect knowledge of the fate of individuals unless acquired in time or that these individuals would even exist. He wouldn't know. As on open theism, how could God infallibly know that people would freely choose to procreate or to create these people or that anyone would freely? <laughs> how, how could God know that? Wait, hold in Baron. Slap. Oh, okay. okay. Sorry. How how can God know that people will have sexual relations and have kids? How can God know that about the future? Uh, I maybe maybe God. I'm just gonna throw this out there. He took a wild guess about what humanity is like. That's what he just said. He said, "How could God know people would procreate?" It's like, yeah. oh. what if everyone decided? To uh, abstain from sexual relations, and and uh, that's that's a that's a contingency that God would have to consider. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so yeah, but there is an answer to that. There is an answer. It's uh, uh, when when John the Baptist is confronted by the Pharisees, and they're like, oh, "God can't kill all of us." And he's like, "Yeah, God can kill all of you and still fulfill His promises to Abraham. He could just." make new children of Abraham from these rocks. So whenever I'm in a debate or discussion, I like to introduce that into evidence very early because then it's it's a very concise answer that answers all their little what if 
what if objections like what if everybody on earth all like six billion all reject god likely you can make new children of abraham from these rocks it's like like okay it's there, there's there's possibilities that god could do god's smarter than you it's it's not like it's not like you're actually giving real objections you're just like throwing things at the wall and seeing what's going to stick john the baptist his answer is kind of kind of making fun of them a little bit a kind of uh tongue-in-cheek it's basically saying why this you're too stupid for this conversation is what he's telling these pharisees god's smarter than you he could do things he can make his things come true you're not smarter than god you're not gonna outsmart god we choose jesus think of like the butterfly effect just all these different variables also we would cite another argument okay you remember the jade butterfly effect story which one okay we're in the car and i got a daughter she's like i don't know four or five at the time and uh she's like the boys were trying to explain to her the butterfly effect and she says dad dad is that true that a butterfly wing uh flap can cause a hurricane i said well the concept is that there there could be a small series of events that eventually lead up to a hurricane mm-hmm. and she says well is that why we catch butterflies in jars <laughs> <laughs> don't cause the hurricanes <laughs> oh I don't think I was there for that. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Meant from Peter in 1 Peter 1.20, which it said that Christ again was foreordained to be sent before the foundation of the world. The same language of foreordination used of Christ's sacrifice in light of human sin in Acts 2 and 4, which implies very clearly that God knew the sins that would be committed and who committed them in order to foreordain Christ's sacrifice. Uh, I think he's getting feedback because he leaned too close to his yeah. mic. Uh, his earphones might be on too much. But then again, the Gospel Truth channel, it might be his software too. So uh, they tell him to back off. And Merrick, hold on. Your audio is going bananas. It was like <laughs> fuzzing out. Don't know what, what that was all about. Yeah. yeah, it was going in and out. Hey, is, do me a favor. Okay yeah, hold on. So if you if you look at Merrick's mouth, it's still moving. And so uh it, it's off. It well, here's what happened. Like the video is like elongated, like, and the longer he talks, the longer the lag's gonna be. Mm-hmm. And so it's gonna carry on well into Tony's Tony's discussion. It's okay now. So if you want to continue, you can go ahead. Okay. Oof. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. It's kind of painful. Likewise, the book of Revelation backs up this argument for it declares that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13. Uh, I, I don't think they've ever interacted with open theists. Uh, the book of Revelation never says anything about any lamb being slain uh, from the foundation of the world. It's talking about names which have not been written in the book from or since the foundation of the world. And you know that because the same phrase happens twice. Once it has the the slain language in it, but that's that's the title of the book that that modifies the book. And once it doesn't, and so it's it's not talking about it. We got clear evidence, and this talking point just needs to die. And for them to repeat it means that they haven't done basic research on on the issues involved in their proof text. These these guys, I I, I really believe they just went on Google and they found common anti-open theist talking points. They haven't studied counter arguments. They haven't studied the issues. And now they're just parroting what they pulled up online. It's what it feels like this debate is. Hey, 
And Paul declares that Christ came into the world. To- uh, Warren writes, James White agrees with us on this Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's what it says. It's, it's. I, I don't think, I don't think that there's a serious counter argument to it. I can't. It's like I can't take them seriously. It's, it's just pretty painfully obvious. To save sinners, meaning since Christ was predestined to come into the world and to be sacrificed for our sins, God must have infallible knowledge that sin would occur in this world due to the force of the phrase predestined for something is destined. It means that it cannot fail to occur by definition. Aaron writes, except for in Calvinism, God does not know the future. He declares it uh, the institutes. Yeah. So Calvinists do this thing where they just use whatever language is uh, most favorable to their position whenever they're talking. And so this was pointed out on my last live stream about the Tyler Vela thing where the atheist criticizes him for using language that Vela doesn't even agree with. He's using language in a misleading way that's favorable to presenting his position, but when pressed on it, then he has to backtrack on the language he's used. Calvinists do not believe their own claims. You're not dealing with someone who actually believes in Calvinism when you're dealing with a Calvinist. They won't act like it. Uh, They'll only, only start talking real Calvinism if pressed very in detail. The point needs to be harped upon, or else they'll they'll try to trick people with their language. They won't say what they actually believe about things. Scripture also uses this term destined for God, knowing those who would finally disobey his will, as we see in 1 Peter 2, 8, as well as Proverbs 16, 4 and Romans 9, where God made some, some for glory and others for the day of wrath. If God, however, has infallible knowledge. Yeah, that's, that's one translation. There's alternative translations that uh, God brings all things to its proper end. Uh, the righteous for the day of righteousness and the evil for the day of uh, judgment. So it's uh, there's alternative readings of these verses. And so they're champion one. They're not going to be able. Uh, this is when I was at the Matt Slick debate. You were at the Matt Slick debate, right? What do you mean at? at like i brought the kids to denver you're not there Mm -hmm. okay but i point this out to matt slick he uses this verse and so i get up there question and answers and i read a different translation i say um what in the hebrew makes your translation for your point the correct translation and this translation the wrong translation it's the same verse be translated Mm -hmm. he didn't have an answer (laughs) uh it's like they they have they have talking points they don't have proof texts and they've never studied their own verses Mm -hmm. to understand alternative legitimate readings that would undermine their, they they have their theology. They don't actually care about the text. The text is just a tool, a tool to use to like bludgeon people or, or to flower up your sermon. You have your sermon and then the proof text you insert later. That's what happens of who the elect are and also what sins would occur and that Jesus would redeem us from those sins, right? Then God also knows of those who will finally disobey his word and then how the opponents of God would like contend. So how, how do the opponents in, in our debate, how do they contend that God doesn't know the future? Um, so kind of both ways are true. If God knows one, he must know the other. Seventh, our, our final argument will be to lay out sort of the absurd biblical and dangerous implications of open theism, especially. Okay, so this is argument by implication. Hmm. Uh, do you have do you, any problem with argument by implication? Hmm? It, argument by implication. If what you're saying is true, 
then this bad thing would also be true. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 just, it's, uh, it's, it's an emotional. Watery, yeah, it's an emotional argument. Like, you hey, know, you know, if home. your wife has free will, then she can cheat on you. That would be terrible. <laughs> uh, so she she doesn't have free will. It's like, ah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I like where your heart is, but <laughs> I I don't think that is a real argument. Right. Like Stephen Molyneux would always be like, that's that's not an argument. Well, it is an argument. It's a really bad argument. It's not it's not a real argument. It's it's like emotional like it's like believing what you want to believe rather than what the text is saying. Right. But they get put they get um pointed out their double standard here because they'll say all the time that within the Bible, God says something will happen and that that thing doesn't materialize. They'll just claim it's conditional. So, how do they differentiate all the promises that they claim must be true in order for them to have faith in God from those? They don't have a something to distinguish the two. It's just it's just goodwill thinking. It's like, oh, I, I, yeah, oh, I, I hope this is one of the ones that come true. <laughs> Even in, in like the, the practical life of the Christian, but of course, our other essential dark doctrines and articles of faith found in the scriptures. So if God doesn't truly know the future, then how could Christ die for us personally if he didn't know that we would exist? How would he pay for the our, our sins specifically, not knowing the sin that we would commit if the future is not eternally settled? Perhaps the open theist could object and say Christ did not make satisfaction for any specific sins. Okay, so now they start getting into atonement <laughs> theories. And so here's their argument. The argument is Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Therefore, he must have had a list of all sins that would ever yeah, be committed throughout of all, all of history. Is that a common argument? It, it's one that Matt Slick makes. And so my dad points out in the <laughs> Matt Slick-Will Duffy debate, he was, we were talking to Matt Slick before before the debate, he makes this argument to my dad and my dad says, oh, uh, uh, American soldiers in World War II died for our freedom. It's like, it's like nobody's going to be like, well, these American soldiers knew every single American who would ever live and what kind of freedoms each of them would have and died for a specific, it's like it just, it's a general phrase or statement. Yeah. But they they claim that Jesus paid a very precise amount. Each each sin has like a dollar value associated with it. Like, <laughs> like if you're stealing a cookie, that's like a five dollar sin. Yeah. If you're murdering someone, that's like a uh, hundred demerits. And then then you add up all these demerits, and there's some sort of uh, numerical number in the void. And then Jesus yeah. died not infinitely for that exact amount. Yes, yeah. right there. It's like uh, two hundred trillion five hundred million. <laughs> thousand and 68 demerits yeah, I, I died for that many specifically there's a list and and this list was nailed with me it was a pretty big list it's pretty thick uh, it was on a digital tablet so it's easier to get nailed on the cross uh but the list was exhausted so this is their argument i don't think that there's a bible verse i don't get why it couldn't be infinite right and matt Matt Slick was trying to use uh, a Colossians verse, uh, a Colossians 2 verse to try to make the point. It's like, you're just assuming that verse has your specific atonement theory right. embedded in it. I'm not seeing it. I don't think normal people will see that atonement theory. I, I'm, I don't think that, that that's a thing. I don't think this these divine ethereal demerit calculators is a thing. 
and they say that in the in this they they claim that these demerits are not meta the sin's not metaphysical so it's like maybe they didn't even discuss between themselves what atonement theories they believe <laughs> yeah so normal people talk like this uh, american soldiers died for our freedom it's like you don't have to explain to someone that Oh, I, 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 I mean, in a general sense, and, and not in a very specific individual sense. For all Americans who will ever, no one talks like this. Only Calvinists, or for people specifically, but only made satisfaction generally speaking, and only people as a collective group. However, Scripture, at the very least, seems to imply clearly that Christ's sacrifice was made to make satisfaction for our sins specifically. For Peter says that Christ bore our sins on the tree. And in Isaiah 53, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2. <laughs> Not that Christ bore sins in general as if sin is some abstract force, like some categorical thing, but that our sins were, were paid for. It, it denotes such a personal connection meaning that christ did go on that cross with us in mind with our names written on his hands and he knew that we would so this is a this is an argument jesus must have had my picture in his mind when he died on the cross or else i don't know some, something bad doesn't count there, there's some sort of bad result if right. he doesn't have my face specifically in his head never mind that jesus was not omniscient as we learned from verses like uh, mark 13 32 he doesn't have this attribute of omniscience so it's like i don't think that jesus particularly had a lot of faces on his mind at that time i think his death was more uh, like the sacrificial lamb thing the, the lamb doesn't have to like know the exact sins that the lamb's getting sacrificed it's it's weird it's weird Commit those heinous sins against him to make satisfaction for us. Roddy points out that it's like narcissism. Like uh, there's that that Calvinist uh, Tyler Vela, or the atheist makes fun of him. And uh, when Tyler Vela is talking, like Christ died for me, I'm one of his elect. There's nothing I did. He just chose me. And he does the like the me 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 video, like that song from uh, the Muffets. Me 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 me. It's narcissism. And so because of that, we can approach his throne of grace. And I appeal to you, listener, if you haven't done that, please repent and, and trust in Christ. And I'll pass over to Tony. Well, he hasn't. All right. Groundwork. All right. So next. He hasn't what? He hasn't laid any groundwork for why he would have to know every single sin for it to be forgiven. Right. And so this is what you'd want to hit on um, very particularly if you are debating against these guys. You guys didn't really make a case that the future is eternally settled. You had a bunch of general statements. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those don't really pan out because there's a lot of general statements within the Bible about humans. And so none of, you didn't look at any of those verses to prove that they said anything like your claims. Uh, you misquoted a bunch of verses like uh, people's names being written from the foundation of the world. That doesn't exist. It's not in the Bible. And so uh, then you made a bunch of claims about things that did occur that that uh, God or prophets said would occur, but then you ignored everything that didn't occur. <laughs> it's like, that's, it's pretty selective. Messy. Yeah. It's, it's... <laughs> Are we going to watch the response to there? Well, yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. watch the, the response. It's, it's not a response because in the, the gospel truth, they, they don't format the debates, how 
like you had debate in college. Like okay. one person gives a case, another person writes mm -hmm. down all the points yeah. and does a direct rebuttal. Right. They they each have their opening statements, which are in this case pre-written and pre-exchanged before the debate, which I do like that aspect that they they mutually exchanged their opening statements. And so okay. that's that's something so that they can already yeah. I have an idea of what's going to be said. Okay. Yeah, I have a podcast where I it's called like round one debate, which I make a make a hypothetical round one that anyone could listen to, and they could do like a oh. round two if they want to. You know, it's yeah. But uh, nobody ever has. Like <laughs> <laughs> they do it. Yeah. yeah well, the, that's actually. I I wish there would be debates in this format where someone could give an opening. Mm -hmm. It's on video, and then uh, another person has time to watch it, review it, edit, and put together their own response to it, and post that as round two. And then there's time to edit and and consolidate and refine your response to that, and they yeah. posted it as part three. So that way, it's not the whole debate's not about who has more knowledge in your head at any particular time, yeah. and how you present yourself. It could be actually very carefully curated you, yeah. you can say exactly what you want right when you want and then there's no excuse like oh i forgot about it right. something like that yeah that'd be good it would be a good good way to do debate yeah, so i don't know if anyone's yeah. got time for that next we'd like to move into our section of giving the groundwork of a proper hermeneutic to approach the passages of scripture yeah Renick says what you're talking about is written debate in video format yes 100 <laughs> that is that is what i'm talking about provided, as well as a proper way to interpret the passages our opponents will give to prove their position and counter arguments. First, we, we, we would like to make aware to our listeners the distinction between didactic passages, which are passages for the purpose of teaching instruction meant to tell us something specific about God or a certain doctrine. And okay, so here's a thing that uh, theologians will do. They'll be like, oh, we have different categories of verses. There's, there's certain teaching verses and there's certain Verses that don't teach, like I thought, all all verses were supposed to teach, right? Um, I thought all all verses mean something in their context. Is like, what's going on here, guys? And so this is an artificial distinction. And so what it what it does rhetorically for them is it allows them to grab their favorite proof texts and list them all off, and then claim these are didactic ones. These are the ones we need to take seriously. And oh, by the way, these texts are also saying the things that we claim that they're saying. And then all your verses, they're under this different category, so we can ignore them. <laughs> and they get to decide. Yeah, they get to decide, stuff. but yeah. they'll ignore <laughs> texts like, 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 uh, like, let's say Nineveh. Uh, God, it says that God saw their their evil ways and repented of what He said He was going to do. And then Jonah says, "Hey, God, I I know you're you're a God who likes to repent." He said, "I know that's part of your character that you repent a lot." And they'll say, "Oh, we ignore." We'll ignore what it says about God repenting, and then we'll ignore what Jonah says about that's part of his known character. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, Jonah's that that phrase is not coming from nowhere. That's that's okay. quoting a different part of the Bible in a more quote unquote didactic setting, which says repentance is part of his core character. So they'll they'll ignore those texts. It's a rhetorical move. It's it's a move in which they are trying to say. Oh, we're so scholarly that uh, we we have these different types of texts, and we know all about the Bible, and and these texts definitely mean our theology. And they're just counting on uh, not these guys. I, I I really think they just googled their proof texts, and they're just parroting whatever anti-open theist narrative they came across with a Google search. So I, I don't think they I don't think these these two people consciously know what's happening, 
with this uh with this the whole uh didactic text versus narrative text but but that's how these things are used narrative passages statements made in quick succession often left unexplained in detail and are used in narrative settings to explain in simple terms what is transpiring a few instances of a didactic passage versus narrative would be that one of defining sin and narratives telling us someone sinned without really uh commenting on if it was a sin or not a clear example of this is on drunkenness which we see in Proverbs 2.1 and Ephesians 5.18 talking about it as sin. These are didactic passages because they're explaining a particular topic and giving a definition on it. In this case, on why drunkenness is wrong and saying it's wrong. Now, a narrative passages, passage on drunkenness would be similar to Noah getting off the ark and getting drunk in Genesis 9.20-21. through 21. The narrative does not comment on if what Noah did was wrong, but just simply explains what happens. Now, it would be improper for someone to formulate a doctrine based off this narrative passage that getting drunk is permissible simply because Noah is called a righteous man, seeing how it directly contradicts in plain terms of more didactic passages on this matter. Since the purpose of the narrative isn't meant necessarily to explicate a doctrine, but is meant simply to explain from a human perspective what they perceive to have occurred without getting into too much detail on their interpretation of the matter. This would be extremely important distinction as we seek to prove our case over and against our yeah, th this is just them cutting out. Oh, okay. Opponent, first you have God having foreknowledge over and above more didactic passages. Another instance of this is negative passages give more context to uh, positive passages, like the scripture saying God is love. Uh, but negative passages give more context to that statement. Where yeah, so if you go to Joel two thirteen, this sounds very didactic. This, this is God talking in 2.12. Even now declares the Lord to return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Repents is, is the word there. And it says, who knows whether he will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering or a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so that sounds very didactic. They'll ignore those texts. And then they'll say, oh, Jonah's saying the same thing. Ignore that because it's in the context of a narrative. Even though Jonah's explaining God's character as commonly known to Israel in the context of God doing something consistent with the character that he's explaining is a common characteristic that they all believe about God. And the Calvinist comes along and says, oh, we, we got to ignore that. We just uh, like that's what they believe. All, all of all the Israelites, this is what they believe about God. Jonah knows who God is to the extent that he runs away. He's like, God, I'm not going to do your mission. What if these guys repent? I hate these guys. I want them all dead. Just kill them all, please, because I know your character. I know your character. And then they don't die. Where God? Okay, so what was were these guys just saying? These guys were just talking about, uh, rewind just a little bit. A righteous man. Seeing how it directly contradicts in plain terms of more didactic. Okay, so they're talking about drunkenness. And so their argument is something like there are some passages against drunkenness. and uh, But there's some also some passages about Noah being a righteous man. But then there's another passage in a narrative about him getting drunk. And so the argument is something like we know Noah getting drunk in Genesis. That was a sin somehow. It, it can't be that we misunderstand it can't be that uh, maybe maybe in that context it was okay. That 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 can't be the case, um, which which is a possibility that real biblical scholars should 
actually consider, but maybe what he's doing is just fine in, in that context. Can't be that. We we know that he sinned there, and we know he's a righteous man. Therefore, we'll just ignore the time where he did something we believe is a sin. It's, it's a it's a kind of weird logic. Yeah. And so it's it's <laughs> actually, like what is his point actually saying that? His point is that we can't because it says that Noah's righteous, we can't take every single act that Noah ever did and declare every single act that he did righteous, which which is valid. So especially if righteousness works by generalities. Uh, so most most adjectives work by being general. If someone's a good person, so are they trying to say like the Bible doesn't can't not always literal? Is that kind they're of saying that it's just a general statement? Right. We we look at the general statement and treat it separately than a, a text, and we can't. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's weird in context argument. because what they're literally claiming is times in the Bible where God repents, we just have to ignore it right. and believe it does not happen because. Other times, Other times it says weird. that God doesn't <laughs> repent. Right. That's weird. It's a very weird argument. Yeah. Big passages on this matter. <laughs> Since the purpose of the narrative isn't meant necessarily to explicate a doctrine, but it's meant simply to explain from a human perspective what they perceive to have occurred without getting into too much detail on their interpretation of the matter. This would be an extremely important distinction as we seek to prove our case over and against our. Okay. He takes a drink. <laughs> yeah, he takes a drink. First, you have God having foreknowledge over and above. Which means in, in the context of this debate, he probably took a drink like five minutes ago. <laughs> of like. more didactic passages. Another instance of this is negative passages give more context to uh, positive passages, like the scripture saying God is love. Uh, but negative passages give more context to that statement where God does not uh, save those who do not repent. As in Luke 13, it says, if you do not repent, you all. Is that loving to not save those who don't? The loving thing to do is just like save everyone. It's like a fill heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer's. Is that, is that is that the assumed loving response? Ah, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I might I might have to disagree. I, I That doesn't sound loving to me all likewise perish so it gives more content and con fill heaven with both the ch children and the child molesters <laughs> text to those positive statements as well another uh uh hey don't i know you yeah i molested you <laughs> term we would like to use in helping us uh, interpret the bible is a use of phrase called anthropomorphism oh, which is uh using uh human-like characteristics to describe something. Uh, we think a clear instance in the Bible of using human-like characteristics to describe God would be human body parts, which we even think our opponents will admit. And so when we see right. negative didactic passages... And so, so the funniest thing uh, was in my debate with uh, Dan and Dane was when they're like, uh, you guys don't believe God has a body, do you? And I, I said, I thought we we're all Trinitarians here. <laughs> and they, they like paused <laughs> because... The, they, they don't want to get into this whole discussion right. of like Jesus's body or something <laughs> like that. And it's just like, they don't know how to respond to this. I, I think it's a great strategy. Scripture saying like, God does not change his mind like a man, like in numbers or in first Samuel 15, this gives us the ground to interpret any passages which say he does change his mind as anthropomorphic. 
All right, Tony, thank you. Thank you guys so much for that. So basically the argument is if we don't take literally some verses about God, then we also shouldn't take literally verses about God repenting. It's like, I, well, you, you, you haven't given us a standard. Your standard is trust me. I'll decide which ones mean which. And, um, they're just there because I said so. And, um, you're definitely wrong. Your reading of the verse is definitely wrong. All right. Uh, Mr. Bo and Dominique, you guys are up for you guys' uh, 15 minute opening. Let me pull you. I was yeah. just waiting for the anthropomorphism to come up. Right. It's it's interesting. People will be like, oh, God sees things. Do you believe he has eyes? And then you'll say something. Does a video camera see something? And then they'll go into like this weird, they'll regress into this weird, oh, trying to be all nuanced after they it's like i i don't you guys don't believe the things you're telling me you don't believe your own arguments you haven't thought through your arguments what are we doing here what are you doing it's like having physical eyes is not the only way to see something but even if it were arguing that this verse must be non-literal because if it was literal god must have eyes and we don't believe god has eyes that's not an argument Maybe the biblical authors believed God has eyes. That's something we have to entertain. And we have to say, okay, maybe they actually did believe it. Yeah. Yeah, Right. So that's uh, Michael Fishbane wrote a book. He's a Jewish scholar and he, he throws out the question, Hey, maybe we're, we're anthropomorphizing too much. Maybe a lot of these people actually (laughs) believe the things that they're saying. That's something that we need to consider God fighting the sea monster. Maybe God, in fact, fought a sea monster. Maybe, maybe that happened, uh, like the Leviathan. You guys in? All right. Uh, I will start the time as soon as you guys begin to speak. Awesome. Well, greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Today we're debating, does the Bible... T- yeah, so they're lagging as well. And so we've got Dominique Enyart. Who did that intro? Future- Was that Dominique? Yeah, that's... That's, that's- Bob Enyart's... Son, uh, and it, yeah, 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 that's his. He's taking his dad's Aww. catchphrase, okay. like and uh, he but his mouth isn't moving, so I didn't know who said it. Yeah, it's it might be both. Like, Bo, did he Bo research Bo Bob Enyer? <laughs> uh, but he does a lot, he does quote his dad a lot, but he does okay. it with non attribution, which is interesting. So, I don't know if he's trying to distance himself from his dad, or maybe he thinks that if he's citing his dad, then the arguments have less weight because of some negative perceptions of his dad that the audience might have or if he's just maybe maybe it's just so common in his household maybe he's just adopted it without realizing all those adoptions of language so it it is interesting to see this young man in his 20s develop so apparently both these guys are in their 20s sure is eternally settled So how do we figure out what the Bible teaches on the topic? There's no verse that explicitly talks about the metaphysics of the future, but we can find examples of the Bible talking about something in the future tense, saying it will be this particular way. And then later on, the Bible also says it will no longer be that particular way. There are three options to this debate. Number one, you believe that nothing about the future is. I just think it's so funny that because of the lag in this system, it's driving me nuts. Honestly, everyone's just like sitting there, like <laughs> bopping their head <laughs> right. while the whole narrative's going. Ooh. It'd be like if you like, 
I, I could literally do this. I could pre-record like an opening statement for like a debate and just play it on my computer and just bop my head along. Well, <laughs> like it'd be like a 10 minute opening. I'd be like, I need this perfect. So I'll pre-record it mm-hmm. and then I'll play. Maybe I'll just mimic like my mouth moving half the time. And then people will think it's like extemporaneous, but it won't be. It'll just be like pre-recording. You should do that. <laughs> or just bop my head the whole time. I'll watch it. Like, I'll like it. Think about that. Like, like when I make a good point, I'll be like, oh, uh-huh. oh, oh. <laughs> predetermined. Number two, you believe there are some things about the future that are predetermined. Number three, you believe that every single thing about the future is predetermined. R.C. Sproul said, quote, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then there is not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Okay, so this is how psychotic Calvinism is. That if there's one maverick molecule, one atom that God does not control, you can't trust anything that God says ever. That doesn't seem like a reasonable standard for any human being. Yeah. It's like, do do you guys trust your own father, R.C. Sproul? I don't know who R.C. Sproul, maybe his his dad was an abusive drunk. I don't know. It's like, do you trust your wife, R.C. Sproul? He's got that famous quote. He's like, men... uh, uh, men complain about uh, God choosing them, but they choose their own wives. It's like your 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 idea of God choosing men is like monergistic, where God just forces them to be elect. It's like, do you think that's how men choose their wife? They just like, I, maybe it wasn't his society where you just go kidnap a lady, like drag them off, like put a bag over their head. Maybe he lived during ancient Rome. That's how they got their wives. They, they run out in the field and and weird. steal them from another city maybe he's older than i thought now i love rc sprawl but i think that's very silly god is not so frail as to be broken by a single molecule regardless i asked yeah. our opponents before the- so yeah again these standards yeah the standards of the calvinist use they they don't themselves operate on these standards or else they would not function in society these are rhetorical claims these are little cute little sayings that they could say that they could repeat that are they're very trite. Yeah, it, it's a rhetoric device. They do not believe it. They do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Greg says that uh, he loves R.C. Sproul because Dominic Ernert says he loves R.C. Sproul. I don't particularly like R.C. Sproul, but maybe he's being nice for the sake of the debate, saying, "Yeah, I love this guy. He's a good Christian, but he's got these flaws." Because that when you're criticizing someone and you're saying that you like them, it's received better. So maybe that's what he's doing here. Maybe he actually likes R.C. Sproul. Maybe he likes his teaching. He's kind of like a, a fat preacher who bloviated a lot. I, I'm not I'm not into that. It's just pious quips. Exactly. It's little rhetorical devices. And so uh, Dom, Dominique, Dominique, uh, he'll be introducing some of his own rhetorical devices, which could catch on about red cars and blue cars. And so I think it's good imagery to put something solid in people's mind. Uh, colors are good as well, because it forces the imagination to see the things that you're talking about, and it'll better cement in, in the listener's mind the things that you're talking about. So when you when you have visual imagery, it's going to it's going to 
it's going to hold a lot better. Like uh, Donald Trump was very good at this in his debates, uh, creating visual imagery that he associated with people who were opposed to him. He'd make a little nicknames for people and uh, it, they would stick pretty well and they are visual in nature, right? And so it, it is a good, good device that he does use. The debate and they agreed with this quote. There is not a single maverick molecule. The point being, our opponents tonight hold the third belief. Every single thing about the future is settled. Bo and I hold the second belief that some things about the future are settled. Imagine, if you will, that we are debating if there are only red cars in the world or if there are some blue cars as well. If our opponents point to a red car, we will say, great, yeah, that's a red car, but a single red car does not disprove the existence of any blue cars. So too, if our opponents tonight point to a single event in the future that was predetermined, that does not disprove the existence of unsettled. Uh, Bo's over there on his little uh, thing uh, laughing away. So that's probably like five minutes ago where someone's probably pointing out to him, hey, you guys are just nodding along and the audio is just oh. way in front of you. And so I was wondering about that. that's probably what's happening there. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he's describing here the fallacy of composition. Just because your window is made out of glass does not mean the car on which that window sits that the entire car is made out of glass. It's it's a mistake to go from particulars to generalities. And so what, what the positive side does, the Nash and Kaiser, they try to go from a larger data set. And so they say that if all our sins are known eternally, um, the only way that that could happen is basically this eternal exhaustive knowledge of all things, which still doesn't prove that this knowledge wasn't generated at some time in the mind of God or at some point settled or fixed or that this extends infinitely into the future. It doesn't prove all those things. But if God had an eternal list of sins that would ever occur, that's fairly good evidence for some sort of fatalism that exists in this world. And so that would be a good argument if it was valid, but it's it's a massive stretch. And so I, I would, if I was in the debate, I would say, if that was true, that would be decent evidence. It wouldn't be proof. It'd be evidence towards the thing you're claiming. But it, that's just, biblical authors did not have that in mind. That's not what they're talking about. That's and so today we are in search of a single maverick molecule. And if we can find a single maverick hey, molecule. Hey, Dominique, when, quick, quick yes. question. Hold right there. It is, the, the video is freezing up again. And it's just, it's, it's lagging hard, man. Uh, do me a favor. I Bo's just cheesing out. Do me a favor. Go ahead and <laughs> yeah. log, back, log out and come back in. All right. Uh, I will be right. I, th I think it's actually on my side. Is this, this thing is uh, acting silly. So. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he resets his connection. Okay, so it's good. definitely the software of Gospel Truth which is doing this. And so maybe his computer's lagging, maybe his internet's lagging, something's going on behind the scenes. Maybe it maybe it only restarts once Gospel Truth resets his software. I don't know. I think there's a time where that happens. Let's jump forward just a little bit. His potter says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a and concerning a kingdom to pluck up to pull down and to destroy it if that nation against whom i have spoken turns from its evil i will repent of the disaster that i thought to bring upon it and the instant i speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom yeah so this is this is a good thing that Dom, dominique <laughs> dominique <laughs> does um he 
he goes through and he takes their little dichotomy, this uh, narrative and versus the didactic text. And he gives an example of God laying down principles for how God acts. And then he goes through an example of how that happens. And so he covers the spread. And so I don't know if he, he, he rams that point home because this is pre-written. Maybe, maybe it's in response to their whole little dichotomy, but that, that could have been hammered down. Like yeah, the didactic texts say the things that we were talking about. If this, if this distinction of didactic and narrative text is even a real distinction, which it's not, it's not. And he does point that out. To build it and to plant it. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will repent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. So this principle is laid out, but that's not all. We also get to see an example of this in action. Not only do we get that chart, but we also get flow. This was recorded in the book of Jonah. The people of Nineveh were exceedingly wicked. Because of this, God said Nineveh was going to be destroyed in 40 days. That was set as the future. However, the people of Nineveh repented. This changed what would have otherwise been the future. Let's read this from Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So one thing that they're doing is they're actually quoting the Bible. So this is actually a lot better than these weird... Uh, of course, they actually have the biblical case, and so it benefits them to quote the Bible. It does not benefit the Tony Nash and Merrick Kaiser to quote the Bible because the, they don't have the biblical case. And so it, it's better for their strategy to do this A.W. Pink thing where you just make a bunch of bold claims and then you just staple on a bunch of verses to the end of those claims. Uh, because that that's how you're going to have to make your case because the biblical authors just do not have... Uh, predestination, eternal, eternally settled future. They just don't have it in, in their minds. And so it hurts them to look at the context of their, their verses. So in terms, in terms of the debate strategy, it's good. Um, but it, it, it just goes to show that they just don't have a biblical case or else they'd be quoting the Bible. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city, and on the first day's walk, he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Skipping ahead a little bit to where the king of Nineveh says, Cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In the next chapter, so it's, it's really weird in the Jonah narrative in which uh, Jonah is preaching 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And Calvinists will be like, well, it's it's not written, but he he preached to them that if they repented, then God would change his mind. It's like, uh, uh, absolutely, the text does not say that. And, and the people in the text, they have no idea if God's going to change his mind. And so their response is, hey, we should repent because... Who can tell if God will repent and change his mind about this destruction? And so the, the narrative says the exact opposite of what the Calvinists wish the narrative said. It's mm -hmm. it's their wish fulfillment about the, the narrative 
when they try to explain what's happening in context. Jonah is praying to God and says, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who repents from doing harm. So again, if we are debating, are there only red cars in the world? This would be an example of a blue car. This is an unsettled event. This is the Bible talking about Nineveh in the future tense saying it will. Be <laughs> so yeah, he says blue car. Everyone in the audience pictures a blue car. Well, not everyone. Okay. This particular way, it will be destroyed in 40 days. Then the Bible teaches it will no longer be that particular way. The city will not be destroyed. 41 days later, the city still stands. And these two biblical passages, Jeremiah 18 and Jonah 3, they are linked together beautifully. And they clearly teach that the entire future is not, nor was it ever, eternally settled. We set out trying to find maverick molecules well, we find entire maverick nations. Awesome. Looks like I got nine minutes and 45 seconds. So yeah, slow looks, down, my son. It looks like your statement. voice is lining up, too. Uh, but to continue that line of argumentation that Dominic has started, I'll be demonstrating that there are many blue cars in the Bible that come in many different shapes and sizes. My first example of a blue car would be found in Jeremiah 26. The Bible indicates that the future is not eternally settled. In Jeremiah 26, we see two very important theological truths about how God interacts with his creation. This passage directly follows the contingency agreement set forth in Jeremiah 18. However, this story goes into detail and displays more information that isn't revealed in chapter 18. In verse 3, we see that God gives the possible outcomes of Jeremiah's prophesying. It may be that they will listen, and everyone turned from his evil way, that I may relent to the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their So it's an interesting strategy to retread ground that's already been presented in the other opening argument. And so I'm not sure about the strategy there. Evil deeds. The first outcome is what God is intending to do at the present time. God says, I intend to do, and that's judgment. God has told the people that they will be judged in verse 4 through 6 if they continue in their sin. But in verse 6, he says, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I'll make the city a curse for all the nations of the earth. However, a second option is offered based on the contingency that they repent. God specifically uses phrases such as they may and I may. With this information, we can decipher that God has predetermined to judge them, and he fully intends to do so. God tells us that he predetermines to judge them because he says, I intend to do something. If God says he intends to do something, we better believe he intends to do it. However, he is willing to repent if they repent, just like the flow chart that is laid out in Jeremiah 18. When Jeremiah prophesies judgment to the people, they take him and attempt to give him the death penalty. It is only after Jeremiah mentions the contingency that they were. So you know what the Calvinist counter argument to this is? They, they do it in, in this debate. Their counter argument is Don't. because God said that he would repent of what he thought to do if the people changed their ways. Then when he actually does it, he's not actually repenting <laughs> because he said he, that's what he was going to do. It's like. If you tell someone you're going to hit them, if uh, they walk into the house, elevate like a stranger, and then they walk in the house and you hit them, you didn't actually hit them because that's you're just doing what you're. It's like the repentance 
as part of what he's going to do. So in their in their view, it's like when God says he's going to repent, he doesn't actually repent because he said he would repent. Like what? What? That's the exact opposite right. of reality. He said, "If you, then I." Yeah, then I will yeah. not do what I thought I was going to do. Right. It's 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 not hard. It's it, you have to be a Calvinist to. You have to really be trying. <laughs> you have to be ideologically wedded to your theology. You have to be an ideologue, ideological capture in order to make these arguments and to believe these arguments are actually legit and to arguments. not even acknowledge that it might mean that. It seems <laughs> dishonest. Like they, there's no way it could mean what it seems like it means. Yeah. So I'm, I'll have to pull up the clip from Sonic the Hedgehog where uh, Jim Carrey uh, does, does that whole thing. He's like, I didn't expect that, but I was expecting to encounter something that I didn't expect. So I did expect it. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, the joke is that it's it's uh, some sort of mechanism to try to salvage hit right. him not actually knowing <laughs> what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's it's just complete cope. It it no it the joke's funny. The joke's funny because it's a crazy person who argues like <laughs> that in a self in a self uh let's say he's trying to bolster himself he's right. he's affirming himself he's trying he's, he's trying it's a cope repent of their ways now therefore mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the lord and the lord will repent of the disaster that is pronounced against you verse 13. What is noteworthy is that in verse 19 of jeremiah 26 the elders understood that god is willing to repent and they pre of the predetermined intended judgment if they repent of their sins. They even mention a historical event in which God has done this before. They say in verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he pronounced against them? But we are going to bring disaster upon ourselves. Even the elders of this time understood that God was not being anthropomorphic and making stuff up or eliciting a response. They understood through past history events and what Jeremiah was conveying that if they stopped their evil, God would repent of the intention that he has to do. And God offering two options and staying true to repenting of the first option, it can be determined that the future event could not have been eternally settled. Therefore, we have found just one other blue car. And just to recap, if there's millions of red cars, we, we agree that things are predetermined. But if there's one blue car, this debate is over. One blue car shows that not everything is eternally uh, predetermined. The second topic I want to bring up is actions and prayers change what would have otherwise been the future. And a popular story that arises when speaking of God relenting his judgment is Exodus 32. In this story, God tells Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. And I will make a great nation out of you. Verse and so uh, the Calvinists, in, in their response to this, they really don't like this idea that God listened to Moses's arguments, internalized those arguments, and acted on those arguments. And so, in the, in the response, the Calvinists are like, "Well, um, if if he, he's actually listening to Moses's arguments, one of the arguments is you're going to kill your people, and that would invalidate your promises uh, to Abraham, 
And they say, well, that's not the case that that's possible for God to invalidate that. Even though we already talked about God making new children of Abraham from the rock. They say, so therefore all the arguments were just as shoddy and, and uh, Moses didn't actually convince God using arguments such as uh, the pagan nations will will think your name is terrible, right? That's that's the one that actually works. According to uh, Ezekiel, when God's looking back at it, he says, I didn't destroy you at that time for my name's sake. He said, I didn't kill you because if I brought all of Israel into the wilderness and just killed them all, then the Egyptians would be like... <laughs> what the heck all these guys are like we're gonna go serve our god and then their their god just brings them to the wilderness and kills them all it doesn't look good it, it looks terrible on god so he, he has a pr concern public relations concern which is yeah. weird for calvinism because god shouldn't have a pr brand in calvinism because he does everything for like uh, his own glory or something like that he doesn't care what people think about him but god cares what people think about him so so he's not going to kill all of Israel and look like it's some sort of death cult God. That That's that's the reason. That's the reason he doesn't kill Israel. That's the reason that Moses tells him not to do it. Ten. But, it'll, Moses, it'll like but it. because of Moses' prayer, God repents of his previous statement. Throughout history, many theologians have come up with various explanations for this text. However, my main point in bringing the story up is to point out that in Psalms 106, this story is actually recapped. And it is there that we found uh, one more important truth. Psalms 106.23 says, Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away his wrath from destroying them. A popular explanation of this story is that God truly didn't intend to destroy Israel. And our opponents would most likely agree with that. I don't know what their view on that is, but a lot of Calvinists would agree God didn't really intend to because it didn't happen that way. But th but God, that God said he would just do it so that Moses would intercede. Again, it's a, like the ex post facto thing. If something, if someone in the Bible says something and that thing comes true, that instantly becomes their proof that the future is eternally settled. But if someone says something and that thing does not come true, they instantly default to, oh, that was conditional. It doesn't dawn on them that, that all these things are conditional. And that they would be making the exact same argument if that thing did not occur. It's just they, they don't have standards. It's, it's it, They're not internally consistent. And um, I don't think our friends, Tony Nash and Merrick Kaiser, understand that. that they, they don't seem schooled enough to actually understand that's what they're doing. They don't have any standards. Proceed on their behalf. However, Psalms 106 brings to light the fact that God truly did intend to destroy them. And would have Moses, and would have, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach. If God tells us that XYZ would have happened if ABC didn't. So I was, I went to a Republican training camp when I was in college. They took a bunch of uh, rising stars. I, ne I, I never, I never, I've never identified as Republican. <laughs> I never registered as Republican or anything like that, uh -huh. but I was involved in the organization and they sent me to that. And uh, their whole thing was, here's how we train our future leaders uh, in, in a political mindset. And they said, if you have a series of evidences against someone, then you don't present it all at once. And so that's what they're kind of doing here in Exodus 32. They're presenting all their evidences all at once, which is 
rhetorically not as effective if uh, as if you were doing something in stages. And so the example they gave at this training camp was uh, there were some sexual allegations against like a mayor or something. And the reporter thought he was doing due diligence. The reporter had like three different ladies, three different testimonies, got them all together. And then he just walked up to like the mayor one day. It's like, how do you deal with these allegations? Hands him the stack, three different sexual allegations. The guy looks through them all, just like, oh, these are all false. The, the story is instantly buried. He just denied all of them. What would be rhetorically more effective is if you release one and say, hey, there's this allegation against you. Uh, you could be like, oh, that's false. But then maybe next week you release a second one. Okay. You said the first one's false. Now there's a second one. Uh-oh. He'll say, oh, that's false again. Then the next one, you release the third. Oh, I see. So rhetorically, yeah. uh, everyone is going to be like, hey, you keep saying these are false, but they keep popping up. Whereas if you gave them all at the same time, they could just be dismissed in one fell swoop. And it's not on the public's mind. It's not as convincing. It's not as convincing. Yeah. And so they're shooting all their shots, their their whole magazine, all their ammunition on this. I like to break it up into stages. So you'll introduce Exodus 32. And on face value, Exodus 32 means what it says. And it's pretty easy to read and pretty easy to understand. And then in cross-ex, you start asking them specifics. And so in the cross-ex, when you're asking them about specifics about the text, it's things that are obvious on reading the text that they need to deny. But then you pull out an additional proof text somewhere else in the Bible that's recounting this event that states the thing that they didn't want to say. Like, uh, did Moses change God's mind? And they'll be like, no, this was this is all performative. This was just uh, exercise for Moses. Oh, what about over here? It says in Psalms that he would have done it if not Moses. So the, the author of Psalms sure thinks that this text means what it says. And so then, the, then they're hit with that in addition. Then you start asking them, what was the reason? What was the reason in this text? Because it's cross-ex. What was the reason that God changed his mind here? Does the text say? And uh, that they'll they'll try to like make little excuses, try to deny that there's a reason that God changed his mind. And then you turn to Ezekiel, it's like over here it says <laughs> it says he changed his does mind for his PR, his image. What what reason does Ezekiel give? <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, I can see. Uh oh, the dominant the Dominique Enyart show is here. He's in oh, studio. Hey, <laughs> but uh, so That's it's. Awesome. If rhetorically, if you want to make a bigger impression, um, you'll take things like this where you have multiple angles of approach and you'll get the people locked in into the tight situations in which they can't quite answer the cross-examination. And you don't shoot all your evidence at once. You don't present it all as if you were presenting a legal case. You're not making a legal case when you're doing uh, in-person debate. You're doing... You're, you're doing an exercise in rhetoric. Yeah, okay. try, try to convince like people. two more hours left. So do they? They do have cross-examination. Continue. And, uh, but I would have used that for this type of scenario in which you have someone and they're forced to answer questions. It's questions that they do not want to answer. And you just could keep <laughs> asking them the same question <laughs> until they answer. Because rhetorically... What will happen is the whole audience will see the people 
like sweating and not wanting to answer very, very <laughs> simple that happens questions. Later, right? Yeah, it does yeah. happen, but not on this particular subject. Okay. I would have used the Exodus 32 for this because it's set up in a way where their denial of very specific points throughout the narrative, which should be very clear to the reader, are later confirmed by other authors in the Bible. So not only are they denying the face value reading, but then you also get them, you, you do the thing like we already talked about with the mayor. He denies all three sexual allegations all at once. Okay. But what if uh, you, you have to deny it one at a time? Right. It's it's a lot more rhetorically effective. They'll, they'll mm -hmm. say, oh, Moses didn't convince God. Well, it, it, Exodus 32 kind of reads that way. So no. Oh, no, that that's just man talk. Okay. What about over here in Psalms where it says that Moses convinced God and it's talking about this? Is that just man talk too? Yeah, that's just man talk too. Okay, what was the reason? Oh, oh, this is all just man talk. There was no reason. Okay, what about over here? Oh, that's man talk too. So it's right. It's not start sounding. Yeah, it's they get in this place that they don't want to be. It's and and they'll physically you'll you can physically see it. Um, the desperation that's going on, the uncomfortable, and it happens in the cross X where he's trying to get up. Hey, hey, God said this will happen. Did it happen? And they're just like, they don't want to answer <laughs> because <laughs> because if the entire cross X was that, that would be that would be fantastic and very right. effective. It'd be like uh, very effective. Just keep saying the same question. Yeah. Right. Not happen. Then we can determine that God's intentions change due to the second event and therefore the first stated intention was not eternally settled if moses never stood in the breach would israel have been destroyed the bible tells us yes if god's true intentions are changed the future cannot be eternally settled once again there are predetermined events in the bible when they're predetermined we don't know but this one was predetermined god told us what he was going to do and it changed if anything ever changes Therefore, it's just another blue car in our example of the red car, blue car. The last final and fast. So he's doing a callback to the earlier illustration to say, hey, this is what we have to show for us to win. And he's doing that visual callback. So that is a good strategy. Last and final category that I would like to bring up uh, to speak about is the fact that the Bible indicates that some past and present events could have had an alternative ending. The example of this happening that I would like to speak of is in 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly and you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. So the typical counter argument that the Calvinists bring is they say, hey, back in Genesis, uh, there was an old dying guy, and uh, he he gave his his twelve different sons these different prophecies, and one of them was that, uh, uh, you know, that the line of I don't know, and so it's 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 weird what they'll do here. They'll say it can't be the case that Saul would have an eternal kingdom because over here in Genesis, some dying guy said that the line of David would have to be the line or something like that. It's not it line of Judah, you know. Um, I don't know if that's an argument. I don't know if that's very good to uh, take some old dying guy, what he's telling his kids as some sort of prophecy of the future, especially when like a lot of the things he said were crypt cryptic 
enigmatic and some of them just didn't occur. But that that it would be their typical counter argument, which it's better than nothing. And so uh, they and people get very up in arms when you start talking about Christological things like Christ had to be from the line of Judah, which means David must have been it and not Saul. It's like, well, I don't uh, they it there's a lot of emotion involved in those types of discussions. And so uh, Calvinist good counter argument for that would would be that the Lord has sought out another man that seeks after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In this story, Saul has been established as king over Israel. And due to Saul's blatant disobedience to God's word, God regrets making Saul king over Israel and cuts him off. It is Saul's disobedience that lands him in trouble with the Lord. The main point of the passage above is that God states to Saul that if he would have obeyed, he would have been king over Israel forever. But because he disobeyed, he has been cut off. If something would have happened, then we know that there was an alternative ending to the story. God actually gives us the alternative ending to this story. For then the Lord would have established your king over Israel forever. If there is an alternative to the events, then that event could not have been eternally settled. And therefore, we have found yet another blue car in the Bible. There are other events in the Bible that could have had alternative endings. For example, when Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Is Jesus lying that he can't actually bring down 12 legions of angels? Or is it the truth that he could do this? So one of the things about that passage, which was not pointed out in this debate, is like Jesus was actively having to do things to fulfill to fulfill prophecy. And so it's not like these things are like automatic or set in the future. It's like they have to take active steps. Jesus wants to be numbered among the transgressors. So he tells his disciples to go buy a bunch of swords so that we could fulfill this. It's There's active intent. So these prophecies are not future crystal ball things of the future. It's There's active agents in those events trying to make those things, quote unquote, fulfill. They don't have to fulfill. And the future could have had an alternative. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, none of the rulers of this age, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul in a didactic text is bringing up the fact that if the rulers, Pontius Pilate. So uh, adopting the terminology of your opponents is probably not the best strategy because you're giving into their frame that there's these things called didactic texts and there's these things called narrative texts and they function in a different way. It's like, can't we just read the text and just figure out what's going on and then come to our conclusions there? Uh, These are not real categories. It's not like you're you're not like uh, reading some sort of history book and be like, well, this is a didactic text and this is a narrative text. You only talk in these categories when it comes to the Bible. And that's that's a that's a good indication it's not a real thing. Had knowledge of who Jesus actually was, they would not have crucified him, demonstrating that there's an alternative reality that could have happened. However, the the way that it happened, it, it happened that way. But if there's a demonstration 
of an alternative. There, it never was eternally settled. And I want to close with this. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous passages that tell us that God's plans have changed, proving to us that not everything in the past, present, and future was eternally settled. This in no way undermines... This in no way undermines God's abilities, but demonstrates to us that God is worthy to be praised for the same reason Jonah praises him, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah 4.2. In our spiritual walk, this principle should help us just as it did the elders in Jeremiah's time when they remembered that in the past God relented his judgment. Because of this fact, they turned away from their sins and were not destroyed. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 26 again. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And, the, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we were about to bring disaster upon ourselves. God is full of mercy. And although there are some events in the Bible that are predetermined, that doesn't mean that every event is predetermined. Just like if there's one billion red cars in the world, that doesn't mean that every car is red. One blue car would demonstrate that every car is not red. A call Just back like to their demonstrated that not a call back to their visual imagery. Everything is predetermined. All right, thank you so much, guys, for that opening statement. Now we're transitioning to the rebuttal rounds. And okay, so let's talk about um, just the visual framing of all these individuals. I think I think our friend Bo here, what he's doing with like the lighting, uh, he. You got some contrast going on. Dominic Enyart, his setup looks like it's very mute, monotone. It's, it's no harsh colors. What do you think about how they're framing their cameras? Do you think it was intentional? Well, I don't think that they are thinking <laughs> about these things. I think it just happens. Like subconsciously? Or... No, I think this is just how they set it up. Oh, and then but, it gives certain But here's the thing. This is a visual debate. And okay. so how you set up your camera actually affects the perception right. of the debate. So like there was a debate that I had Even where- like what you wear, Ken. Yeah, we were yeah. shooting down on me. My green screen wasn't working because they were using some sort of stupid team <laughs> software that was idiotic. Uh -huh. And so I, it, it wasn't a good visual presentation. Like for example, Tony Nash here, it's like this, <laughs> he's like in the dark and he's huddled <laughs> in the dark and he's like peering out of the dark. It's it's not a, not a good look that imbues confidence. It's it's like it's almost um, menacing, and so yeah, he probably could have been helped by better lighting. Like some light, yeah, yeah, because people might just visually associate with you with with uh, darkness. So I think Bo's oh, yeah. lighting is very good. I think it uh, you're able to see his hand gestures very well when he's right. talking. And so he, he speaks with confidence and with the hand gestures that you actually see, um, you could tell that like he believes these things right. and it signals something to the audience of value. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, yeah, this is what I'm explaining to you. It's like, uh, he's speaking with confidence. And so I, I think his might be the best setup here out of the four of them. And I think the second best setup might be our guy with the baseball cap. I don't know. If I, I would go with Dominic. Yeah, maybe Dominic, but uh, pro yeah, I probably wouldn't wear a baseball. I'm having bias. Like, that's what I actually think. <laughs> baseball cap. I don't know if I yeah, do the baseball Yeah, the baseball cap. cap's like shadowing over his face. And... Yeah, he should have got rid of the baseball cap. And then this. he's got the earbuds. I don't know. Right. Casual. I don't know. But it's fine. I don't know. 
I yeah. care more about what they're saying though. Right, you do, but subconsciously <laughs> right. people people start associating your setup with uh, with uh, what you're saying. So if you want to maximize your chances of winning okay. debates, you have to think about aesthetically pleasing setups. I'm not saying that mine's like any <laughs> because my green screen since I moved, I've not been able to set it up accurately again. So it's not the best, but people don't watch me for my <laughs> looks. I don't know about that. I do. I do. <laughs> uh, they usually watch me for the informational content. But uh, that it's like at least they don't have super scraggly. I mean, that's probably why everyone's watching this debate too, though. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have super scraggly long beards, and so uh yeah, Andrew's beard's mm -hmm. looking pretty good. Everyone's got kind of like a little beard thing going on. So you want to hear the rebuttal round, or are you timing out with uh, two hours? Yeah. What? I'm uh, good with whatever you want to okay, do. Okay, I'm, I'm going on then. <laughs> okay, let's go. Great, thanks so much. So we'd like to thank our opponents for their thoughtful opening statement. Uh, so there's maverick molecules. Um, how about a maverick hair that falls from the head of one of God's children without his permission? God gives permission for our hair to fall out. Like God... <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> please stop giving permission for my hair to fall out. God, please don't do that. I got I got to keep it all. It's, it's not going to stay forever. <laughs> like, how about a maverick mangled fetal image bearer? Yeah. OK, so it does the abortion thing. But so he's conflating the two verses. There's the verse that says, uh, us bears don't fall apart from God, but it's it's not clear exactly what that's talking about. Whether it's about God's control, God they they don't fall to their death apart from God controlling it to happen. That's one reading, or without God's knowledge, like God's aware of these sparrows falling and he's he's tracking this things like that. And then he's taking that concept and he's applying it to our hair loss, which. <laughs> Uh, it's not he's not called out on this so i, I don't know how well it's 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 actually it, that uh, our friends dominic and Bo, how if they're tracking that error that god won't repay justice for in response to the car analogy i would offer another more accurate one that dan chapa has shared imagine if you will that someone tells me having never set foot in my house the precise details, colors, sizes, etc., of the first 30 shirts in my closet. Now, would it be some great absurdity to suppose that he knows what the 31st one is? It must be noted before dealing with their proof text that in order for them to argue that God undergoes a literal change of mind, one of the two one of two things must occur. First, either God goes back on an unconditional statement, or he forgets about something he stated he would do in the past and is reminded of it. Both are absurd biblically, as this would make God image. Yeah, Roddy writes, a Rogaine violation of God's divine decree. It's like Rogaine is subverting God's will. It's like, just like uh, Kaiser, he states that he told both his debate opponents that they shouldn't go through with the debate. Uh, Mark Kaiser, who are you to to declare against God, right? Who are you, oh man, to, to try to thwart God's will that this debate goes through, that these people do what you consider blasphemy the calvinists they don't they don't believe they don't believe the things that they're saying you're not dealing with true believers 
They're they're true believers in the sense that they'll just repeat endlessly anything that they can to try to argue their point of view. They don't actually internalize and believe the things they're saying. Though it doesn't affect their practical life. You'll listen to entire Calvinist sermons that don't sound like Calvinist sermons. They don't actually believe Calvinism. Immoral, so that in his mind we will. So it, with this in mind, we will offer a critique of, of some of these textual things. So in regards to Jeremiah 18, God interacts with his creatures in a meaningful way, in a, a real way. God is still in control of all the options, though. The judgment here against the nation is conditional. Let me respond to some of their like philosophical conclusions. I think it's still important, even though this isn't a philosophical debate. The conditions are based on human actions. Take two conditions. Condition A, condition B. Depending on the change from the title of the debate, I sure thought it was going to be a philosophical debate because there's nothing about the Bible and the title change in the people and the conditions they meet. Um, these things will change, but there's no notion of him changing at all. He's doing what he said he would do in either either situation. So pouring out wrath does not produce a change in God, but in creatures. Uh, changing the will is categorically than willing the change of something external. When God wills something, his agency is not being changed. It does not become different from what it was before. Instead, the differences are not in agency itself, but only relatively in its like relation. Yeah, so I think he's losing his audience, except for his uh, true believers here. So what is, is if you try to explain this stuff to like a normal person, they're going to be lost. It's like, it does, just doesn't make sense to them. The thing. So the change is in man, not in God. So we'd say in Jeremiah 18, God establishes a general policy that if he proclaims judgment and people repent, he will repent or relent. Similarly, if he declares blessings and people do evil, he will take action. This shows that relenting is, in fact, part of God's general unchanging plan and part of the future, and at least back then, that was eternally settled. If I say that I'm going to punish you for stealing out of the cookie jar, but I will change my mind if you put it back and the child puts it back. It's not some unforeseen change or rogue molecule or rogue nation. And in fact, no real change of mind at all, since the person is simply sticking to a stated intention and thus... This is really weird. And so um, the argument seems to be that if your kid grabs a cookie, and uh, let's let's rewind that argument, and we'll just re-listen to it again. If he declares blessings and people do evil, he will take action. This shows that relenting is, in fact, part of God's general unchanging plan and part of the future, and at least back then, that was eternally settled. If I say that I'm going to punish you for stealing out of the cookie jar, but I will change my mind if you put it back and the child puts it back, it's not some unforeseen. Yeah, so you're not lying to your kid. He thinks that you're lying to your kid. Uh, your kid takes a cookie. You say, I'm going to spank that or spank you unless you put that back. I'll change my mind about this punishment if you put that back. You really intend to do that. The kid, it's like you don't know your future kid's actions. If you knew your kid's future actions, you you wouldn't be talking like this. And so uh, all their analogies always depend on normal free will understandings of how the world operates because that's how normal people operate. And so like the Matt Slick thing where it's like, oh, uh, yeah, God can know the future, yet that future not be determined because, look, uh, you know you're going to go to work tomorrow or something like that. Matt Slick made this argument to me that uh, that uh, your brother-in-law knows he's going to drive home after this debate. And so, see, you can know the view future without it being settled. 
yeah, that's not the type of knowledge you're applying to God. It, yeah, that's not at all what it's, it's not at all equivalent. That's my knowledge. That's open theistic knowledge, knowledge that can be falsified. That's open theism. Matt Slick, you hack. You hack Matt Slick. Change or rogue molecule or rogue nation. And in fact, no real change of mind at all, since the person is simply sticking to a stated intention and thus. Should, should we go try to find that uh, Sonic? Uh, expecting sonic expecting and uh, no what what is this uh expect scene he's like uh, i was expecting not to uh to have something that i wasn't expecting uh-oh here here it is the time for talking is over it's time to push buttons. Your flying eggs are pretty impressive, Mr. Eggman. But let's face it, you'll never catch me. Confidence. A fool's substitute for intelligence. That's not good. Uh, Sonic, I know you got the super speed and everything, but Maddie and I, totally defenseless, probably gonna get blown up. Pretty much, yeah. Don't worry. I know exactly what to do. I was not expecting that. But I was expecting not to expect something, so it doesn't count. <laughs> the joke is that uh, it's just some sort of cope uh, in order to justify your lack of knowledge of something, right? And so it's pretty obvious to people who are watching that that it... Yeah, he wasn't expecting that. He shouldn't try to congratulate himself of for not expecting or for not knowing what's going to happen because he's expecting, you know. No, I'm talking about it's normal people don't think or talk like this. It's a cope. They're coping. They're uh, Dr. Robotnik. We will argue that omniscience entails an exhaustive knowledge of the past, present, and future. Indeed, all things possible and actual are perfectly known by God. We will defend this position in contrast to the open theist view, which argues that God is not truly omniscient, at least not in the classical sense. Indeed, many open theists argue that God cannot truly know the future. Well, I think we, we backpedaled. We're all the way back to the beginning. So I got I to gotta zoom forward. And find where we're at. We're probably creatures in a meaningful way and a real way. God is still in control of all the options, though. The judgment here against the nation is conditional. Let me respond to some of their like philosophical conclusions. I think it's still important, even though this isn't a philosophical debate. The conditions are based on human actions. Take two conditions. Condition A. Yeah. So if I say, um, if you if you stranger come into my house, I'm going to punch you in the face, and then they come into the house and I punch them in the face, I still punch them in the face. And so if God says, I'm going to repent if you do this, and then they do it, then God repents, he still repents. And it, there's not there's there's not another option. You don't get to say that he didn't actually repent. It, it's, it's within the scenario. The scenario can't play out in your mind. It just can't happen. Let's fast forward again. Uh, I would say that it, it was not an unconditional statement that there was no literal change of mind, as our opponents understand it. So that, like... God, by not destroying Nineveh in Jonah 3, is he's simply sticking with a previous stated intention 
and has no bearing on any idea of you know if if it, on the idea if God knew if they would repent or not. Well, Jonah didn't get that message. Jonah and all of Israel thought that God is a God of long suffering, quick to repent of what He said that He's going to do. This is this is the common character that that those people believed of God to such an extent that Jonah didn't want to undertake the mission. This is his stated reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God's character of repenting, right? And so you don't get just claim that the text doesn't mean what it says. Jonah knows God better than Kaiser. Jonah knows God better than Nash. Jonah was a prophet of God who had direct communication with God. Nash is not. Kaiser is not. They, they, I'm sorry, your guys' opinion's not as valuable as Jonah's. Even though Jonah was initially angry with God for seemingly doing the opposite of what he said he would do, later in the story, God explains to Jonah that he is a God of mercy, and he planned to show mercy to Nineveh all along. Jonah 4, uh, 10 through 11. This suggests that the purpose... Not unconditionally. Uh, it, it, based on the condition they repent, there's plenty of non-repenting cities. The purpose of the narrative was more to remind Jonah of God's mercy than to teach a doctrine about God not knowing the future. So let's go to Exodus 32. We would respond by saying that Moses appeals to God's promise, a promise he made to Abraham or to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the prosperity of Israel, meaning God would. Yeah. So back to the Romans conversation, Jeff writes, I think it's fair to say that if the biblical writers thought of God as Kaiser and Nash claim, they could have wrote it that way, right? The Bible is not written by closed theists. The Bible is written by open theists who believe in open theism, uh, believe in a God that responds and interacts with the world and in real time makes decisions. And you see it even in Romans 9. Uh, one of my, I don't think I've actually done a show specifically on Romans 9, but I need to just go through and say, would a determinist who's trying to convince someone of free will write this sentence? If he knew his audience believed in free will, and he wants to convince him of determinism, does this sentence make sense? And just go through Romans 9. You're, you're, you're not actually dealing with, the, this is their big proof text that they're always like, they make memes. It's like, Romans 9 scares the free will people. If you read Romans 9, it's not what it's about. It's not trying to convince people of determinism. That's not what's going on. Not destroy it. So in order for the open theist argument to stand, not only must they argue that God changed his mind on an unconditional statement, but also that God forgot his own promise in order for God to literally change his mind. However, how could God forget his own promise when Moses doesn't, especially since scripture declares he knows our very thoughts? I mean, think of God with, with Abraham and the doves and splitting him and putting him to sleep and all the, you know, it's firm, right? So they'll make an argument from this passage about how prayer changes God's will. However, this shows that it's impossible to have confidence in prayer rather than the opposite. Uh, showing the entire point, the, the open theist point about prayer to be self-refuting. For scripture teaches we are to have confidence and no doubts in our prayer. Mark 11, James 1, right? Practical epistle stuff. But if God is not bound by his promises for his own sake, then there's plenty of room to doubt our prayers will be effective at all. Instead, this, this seems like a complete non sequitur. If God can change his mind, then our prayers aren't effective. Okay. All right. I, th I think, I think this is how it goes. I think, I think this is his logic um, because there are passages in the Bible that state that God will respond to our prayers. God might change his mind about responding to our prayers. And so we should have no confidence in the prayers that we make. It's like, 
is it is this how people operate in their day-to-day life because my wife is faithful now um but she has the capacity to be unfaithful or or turn against me or or not do things that i ask then i should have no confidence in the things that i ask of her right this this is absolutely insane logic it's it's made by people who are detached from reality they're they're not making arguments based on how the world world actually operates they're they're detached from reality it, prayer does not literally change the mind and will of god but rather prayer is an instrument an instrument that god uses to enact his will his will be done thy will be done in the world thus through our prayers god produces effects in the world similar yeah the whole biblical teaching on prayer i think there's a whole book written on prayer i think beater wolf i, I feel like beater wolf is the author it's like they're looking into no oh, bob hill bob hill became an open theist because of the biblical teaching that's exhaustively about prayer and prayer affecting god i'm pretty sure that's 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 what i was thinking of here he he read uh Beater Wolf, ah, Beater Wolf, his book, and that convinced him of open theism. I'll have to find that book. Similar to someone seemingly changing their will in accordance with the request. However, since God's will is that he has decreed to set up prayer as an instrument by which to bring about events in this world, as he desires to work in and through with his creation, then the position of our opponents, their argument does not follow and God can know the perfect, the future perfectly on this basis. So God was angry with the Israelites, threatened to consume them. But at Moses' request, he turned away from his fierce wrath and spared them. Although God knew from eternity what he would do and how the situation would unfold, from the perspective of Moses and the reader, God presented one course of action and ultimately chose another. Full stop. That's not open theism. That doesn't do anything to go against the debate proposition or biblical Christianity or, or what we would hold to as as confessional Protestants. It's not denying that. The yeah, I was right. Beterwolf. How can God answer prayer by William Edward Beterwolf? This is an old book and it uh, predates it's 1906. Oh, 1906. That means it's not in copyright anymore. Uh oh. Okay, so 1906, How Can God Answer Prayer? And uh, it's available for free on Google Books. And uh, I think this is what convinced Bob Hill. And so, uh, and that and just a study of prayer. But prayer affects God. And throughout the Bible, that's pretty clearly the case. People change God's mind almost instantly. God, God uh, does things that people want. Uh, over and above the things that he wants. He wants to destroy all of Israel and make a new nation through Moses. Moses prays, Moses gets his way. God changes and meets people's prayers. And so for them to cl claim that prayer is performative, prayer changes us and not God, this is not the biblical story. It's not the biblical narrative. This is a complete pagan interjection on the text of the Bible. Future is settled. Uh, in regards to Jeremiah 26, the same critique can be offered that we gave to Jeremiah 28 in, in their interpretation of it. And so I'm sorry if my microphone cut out a little bit. Um, so again, I appreciate the, the rebuttal and I look forward to a, a good cross-examination. All right. Thank you guys so much. All right. Next up, uh, Mr. Bo and Dominique, you guys are up. <laughs> Dominique. Get you guys in here. I can find you guys. There you go. 
All right, you guys are up for your seven minute rebuttal. And I will, let me restart your time here. This time back to seven minutes. And... All right, you guys have it for seven minutes and I'll stop time when you guys begin to speak. Awesome. So to start, Merrick says God is not affected, but we see in Jeremiah 18 that God will not do that which he intends. This is a change in the mind of God. Also, Jonah 4 has nothing at all about this being the plan all along. Now, our opponents tonight, at the start of their opening statement, they completely abandoned the debate resolution. We are not debating, does God know the future? Both sides agree he does. We are instead debating, what is the future like? Is it settled or open? If Bo and I asked, does God know the future is unsettled? They would say no. Imagine if we then said, so you don't think God is all-knowing. That would obviously be unreasonable as we would be assuming our conclusion, yet that's exactly what our opponents are doing. Again, we're looking. So I do like how he interjects this idea that they are just assuming what they're trying to prove. I wish it was expanded to every single one of their proof texts is like this. If we turn to a single one of their proof texts, none of their proof texts say what they claim. So that way, that way uh, in the cross X, you know, you could try to get them to start talking about some of their proof texts and you just show your proof text doesn't say what you claim. How can we be assured of any of your proof text? Say anything of what you claim, right? But looking for any blue cars, we're looking for maverick molecules, and they are everywhere. God is omniscient, He is all knowing, He knows the future as unsettled, He knows the future as changeable, He knows how the future is going to be changed, and that's the flow chart He lays out in Jeremiah 18. Then we see examples of that everywhere, like Nineveh, like Hezekiah, like Moses pleading with God, like Saul no longer being king, like Christ calling down a legion of angels. Each one of these is clearly unsettled. Now, our opponents pointed to Isaiah 46 10, where God is declaring the end from the beginning. Chapter 48 shows clearly the reason is so that all these stupid idol worshipers can't give credit to their idols when something big happens. This isn't a declaration made at the beginning of time, whatever that means, about time, whatever that means. These are declarations about specific time periods. Isaiah 42 says, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. These are new declarations. By the way, that word new, like a new car, that's the opposite of eternally old. Yeah, so what you want to do with these things, instead of addressing arguments one at a time, because they throw out a ton of arguments, and at the end, in their conclusion, they're going to say, you guys didn't address this argument, this argument, this argument. You, you just need to consistently make the case after you respond to one of their arguments. You say, if this argument is this poorly thought through, if this argument is... This shoddy, if their proof text, if you look at the context, doesn't at all say what they're claiming, then none of their proof texts do. It, it, they haven't presented one proof text. They haven't gone to the context to show that the context makes the claims that they're making. They're gonna they they shotgunned us with a ton of proof texts. Uh, they're just trying to flood flood us with points to refute, but none of them do. We just turn to any single one of them. They could present them. They could pick one and turn to it and go through it. They don't want to do it. None of their proof texts say what they're trying to collect. When God says something is new, our opponents have to argue that means it was eternally old. As far as foreknowing future free will decisions, even we as humans are able to do that. I know my brother is going to talk with this debate, talk about this debate with me afterwards. 
Um, as far as prophecy goes, Bo and I have no problem with prophecy. That says people will hate try to kill Jesus. There are 7 billion sinners on this planet. The Father is more than capable of finding someone who hates Jesus and putting them together. God uses his vast power, wisdom, and might to bring about his will. But again, that does not disprove the existence of various unsettled events. Then about God knowing counterfactuals, and Bo is probably going to get mad at me for using my time on this, but uh, it's important, so we got to go through it. We're debating if the future is eternally settled. Our opponents quoted 1 Samuel 23, and let me read their proof text. So David asks, quote, will Saul come down as your servant has heard? And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will men of Kaliah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kaliah, so he halted the expedition. So just to recap, the Lord said he will come down and they will deliver you. So it, it's always good to use uh, your opponent's proof texts to show that their proof text actually argues against their beliefs because it's their proof text. You shouldn't expect their proof text to be evidence for your belief. And when it does, it's it's very rhetorically effective, super effective against them. So they, they turn to the Kaliah incident. What happens is King David is running from Saul. He helps out the city. And then he's like, hey, God, if I stay at this city, is, are these people, are they going to be loyal to me? Or are they going to turn me over to Saul? And uh, God says, these people will turn you over to Saul. David leaves. Guess what? The people don't turn him over to Saul because when God talks, he's talking like a normal person. It's this is this is not some super secretive metaphysical language about oh I could foresee the possible futures of it's like these people are unreliable don't trust them get the heck out of here and then they get the heck out of there this is just normal talking so people uh, you can kind of even see it in open theists where open theists want to make more of the text than the text actually says and they'll say see God knows counterfactuals. It's no, it's, it's just God. God doesn't trust these people. God sees uh, Kalea and it's like, I, these people are not trustworthy. Get the heck out of there. And there's a very similar passage with uh, Abraham and Sarah. And uh, Abraham says to his wife, he's like, hey, I know you're really beautiful. And so when we get to Egypt, men are going to see you and then they're going to kill me because back in these days, if you wanted a wife, you just killed the husband and you could just take the wife. Uh, it's it, it might make things better if we implement that in the United States, but that's how you worked. <laughs> they just kill the husband. You just take the wife and he says, Hey, I know that they're going to do that. So um, just say you're my sister. And uh, so that's what they do. It's not like Abraham knew all counterfactual. It does, he doesn't even have to know the Egyptians. He doesn't have to know these people. He just knows. This is how men operate. Men see a woman and it's like, hey, is she married or not? Oh, she's married. I could fix that. That's something I could change. And then they'll, they'll go do that. Right. All you have to do is know people. Yeah. Irenic says there's nothing in the story that affirms or supports ideas of counter factuals. He put counterfections. Everything can be accounted for based on present knowledge of Saul's heart and the men of hearts of uh, Kayla. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing that requires some intimate knowledge of branching future paths, which is a weird concept that uh, Bolinist they have in their head. 
that uh, people operate on blueprints. And so God can know what will happen in every single situation based on the inputs that go into those people. So these people are not real people in Molinism. People are robots that will have predefined outputs that materialize based on the inputs you put into them. In that way, Molinism is the exact same thing as fatalism. People do not have volition. People don't have free will. They don't have actual decision-making processes. They're just they're just a sum of their parts. They, they have the, the output that's pre-programmed. And so a lot of this talk about counter, counterfactuals kind of kind of kind of puts that us into that territory. Of course, the open theist will say the counterfactuals are that God knows as every possible decision a free will agent couldn't make, even though he doesn't know which option that that person's going to take. And then Saul did not come down and they did not deliver David. This is as clear of an example as you, ch about changing the future as you could ask for. You cannot get in. I, I love I love that. I love that he turns it around on them, takes their own evidence and puts it against them. Be more explicit. And our opponents are using this as an argument to say the future does not change. I love these guys, but they are twisting scripture. If your strongest proof texts teach the opposite of what you believe, that's not a good sign. Now, for their sixth point, and I don't want to get into a huge debate about soteriology tonight, but they argue that God foreordained and foreknew which individuals were going to be saved. I take issue with that, but for the sake of this debate, I'm going to point out where believers who God intended to follow him forever were cut off. Aaron's sons, for example. In Deuteronomy 18, speaking of Aaron, quote, for Yeah, I, I think this is a good idea, pointing out specific examples of people who... I would throw Judas in this, right? Judas was a disciple that was picked and uh, it specifically states in John that this is one of the people that are included in who who Jesus is supposed to protect his flock and uh, he loses him but then an exception is made so that uh, the prophecy could be fulfilled right and we already talked about that prophecy language it doesn't mean it doesn't mean like there's a crystal ball prophecy a Nostradamus prophecy in the Old Testament. But there's a there's a legitimate excuse for why Judas fell away. But he's he's counted as one who fell away. People fall away. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. God wants his sons to serve him forever. But what happens? Leviticus 10. Uh, then the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So God determined beforehand that Aaron's sons would serve him forever, but that did not happen, showing that event to be unsuccessful. Their seventh argument, Christ died for me specifically, me, 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 it's all about me. First John 2, 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Bo's laughing about something. He, he's getting some sort of text messages. But for the whole world, that argument falls flat. Moving on uh, with in their opening statement, they talked about uh, didactic texts and narrative texts. And they talked about it in a way that they almost seem to contradict. Dominic uh, says that Jesus isn't a great example for the debate. Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to point it out in the debate. But in reality, he is one that does uh, fall away. Dict each other? They do not. Per our example, Jeremiah 18, the principal text, the didactic text to steal their term, teaches us how... Yeah, typically in a Calvinist debate, Judas would be brought up as their evidence. Like, hey, look at this guy. This Judas thing must happen. 
And then you have to point out the the things that we already talked about. There's no actual prophecy about Judas falling away. If Judas didn't fall away, what would you do? There, there, no one no one would know any difference. And uh, guess what? Uh, then Jesus would have, have saved all his sheep that uh, John admits specifically that he did not. There was that exception. How the future might be changed. And then in Jonah 3, with the story of Nineveh, we see the narrative text. And those two work together. They work together with such beautiful... So that's what I would have done with the Nineveh text. I would have taken that text and talked about what Jonah says about God and then matched it to Joel. And Joel, you could consider the didactic text, even though Jonah's talking in a fairly didactic way too, using borrowed terminology. And then you have the narrative, and then you have the didactive by their definition showing that it's just normal talk. People, when talking about God, that's their normal way of talking about it. God repents. It's a normal part of his character. It's a known part of his character. Everyone in Israel knows the, this about God. The only people who don't know about God, that about God, is, is modern Christians. They don't know that about God. They don't read their Bibles. Synergy. The didactic text is Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So that's Okay, so yeah, it's, it's very important when you're doing this visual thing that when you, you use that text and you say, I thought, you point to your head. And so if, if you do the second part, then you said... I won't do what I thought to do. And then if uh, the other nation, if uh, they repent of them being good, then I'll repent of what I said I would do. And so if you're doing the pointing, you're doing the physical motions, uh, you're, you're driving that point home in a visual sense while you talk about it. So people are visual creatures. Your, your visuals, your hand gestures need to complement and emphasize your point. It's just another way to... Uh, get through to individuals who you're trying to convince of something. That's the didactic. And then the narrative text is Jonah 3.10. Then God saw their works. that They turned they turn from their evil way. And God repented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. The so I'll always do the thing. So God says he won't do what he thought he was going to do. And he won't do what he said he's going to do. You kind of do the pointing to illustrate. These work well together, not against each other. Not to mention 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So even narrative is profitable for doctrine. It's also Yeah, I think that's a really good text to pull out. He's, he's, he's trying to say that this didactic, didactic versus narrative, it's not a real distinction. Everything's valuable for teaching. And, and what is the narrative teaching us except for what these general properties of God are. Um, the, the, Isaiah is a perfect example. You know you can trust God because then it goes over the history of what God has done, what he has said he is going to do, what he did, um, Israel's history with him. The specifics, the narrative, are generalized into an adjective. Or the, it's generalized into a descriptor of God. It's not the other way around. You don't know that God is good because that's just a property of Godhead. He must be good. You know he's good because he's done these previous things throughout history. What modern day philosophers do is they reverse it. They sit around in a circle. And they're like, oh, I think the best God would be 
loving. And other guys like, yeah, that means he doesn't send anyone to hell, right? I don't know. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's what loving means. And then the, then they read the Bible, and then they have to reinterpret. That's not how ancient Israel did theology. They're normal people. They're practical people. They say, hey, how do I trust God? It's it's. They don't have this idea, I trust God because he's immutable and his promises must. It's like they're living their real life. It's like, how do I trust this guy? What evidence do you got? Uh, and then, then the prophets have to convince them. They say, well, uh, remember when he said he was going to do that thing before and then he did it? Yeah, that. Uh, are you convinced yet? And the guy's like, no, give me more. It got to convince me to trust this God guy. Yeah. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah, all these people, they're not Calvinists. They don't sit there and argue God properties. There's, there's no discussion of, well, since God is the ultimate good and he's truth, his promises must fulfill based on his God property of being true. No one talks like that. That's it, not in the Bible. None of these people are living in this world. It's also worth pointing out that since we exchanged opening statements prior to the debate, we were able to examine the scriptures of our, our opponents used. They used 19 different narrative passages as proof texts in their opening statement alone. This is okay. So this point, they're saying our our opponents are using narrative texts. And so what happens, but uh, the Calvinists come back on a little bit later saying, oh, we did that because you guys were using narrative texts. <laughs> It's like, I think you guys are lying. I think you didn't know any context of any of the texts that you gave. And this is just a after the fact justification. It's like, what sense does that make if you think that these are not accurate ways to make theology to include that in a, your opening statement on the principle of doing, using the arguments that your opponent makes? It's, it doesn't add up. I think they're lying. I think I think they're actually lying in this debate. I think I think they 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 got hit. They didn't know what their proof texts were from. They didn't understand their proof texts, and they got hit with this little fact. And then they had to scramble for some sort of like reason why this. It's like if your your kid does something wrong, and then you ask your kid why they did that, and then they just make up an excuse on the spot, and it makes no sense. Did that already happen, or is it going to happen? Uh, they'll they'll say it a little bit later. Did I miss it while I was gone? No. Uh, okay. they'll, they'll say it a little later. They'll say, hey, we use the narrative text because that's what you guys did. Got it. T Dominic says it was in their open. They went before we did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Their claims that narrative texts are trumped by the didactic text was in their open. Yes. Um, then Dominic points that out in in the rebuttal round. But then afterwards, when called on their use of a narrative texts in their own arguments, then that's when they lie and they come up with the claim that their narrative texts they're using as a gotcha because if you're doing it, we should do it too. It's 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 a it's ex post facto justification. I don't think that that justification's in their opening round. That was their lie. Their lie is. And their lies to cover up the fact that they don't know the context of their own proof texts. That that's what's stemming this. That's what's creating this. I I don't believe them at all when when they they make that claim. 
is almost a third of the scripture used in their opening statement. So this appears to be a double standard then, where we cannot show truths about God from narratives, but they can. We should also add that the 19 narratives they used do not include the scripture where a didactic statement was made in the middle of a narrative. This will come into importance later in the debate as we also use didactic statements that are made in the middle of narratives. And we predict our opponents will point that out, uh, that we are using a narrative for our case when in reality. Yeah, because this whole distinction, it's a rhetorical device by the people who use it. They don't actually believe the things that they're saying. It's just an ad hoc way to say, all our proof texts that we're using have some sort of special status that trump all the proof texts you use. We came up with these categories, uh, and so we're right and you're wrong. Reality, uh, we are just using the same of didactic statements they are. Again, they need to disprove stories like Nineveh, like Hezekiah, like Moses pleading with God, like Saul no longer being king, like Christ being able to call down a legion of angels, and I do not think they will be able to do so. All right. Uh, nine seconds. You guys are good. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on to the next round of our debate, which is the cross-examination. And so All with right. the cross-examination... Uh, things are predetermined, and so God knows they will occur in the future. But that doesn't mean everything is, right? What is your criteria to determine whether or not something's predetermined by God and what isn't? Uh, our criteria is Isaiah 46.10. He says it and he will do it. <laughs> okay. Um, so how do you actually apply that principle in a period like 2023 where scripture, uh, where we don't, we can't look at all these places where things aren't predetermined supposedly. Like how, how do you apply that standard in 2023? I don't concern myself with what God's predetermined or not. He tells me that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And that's what I know. Um, he tells us and it'll happen. The only thing. So th this is weird. So if this was an actual debate about what the Bible says, it's weird to say, you have right. weird practical implications in the modern world. Therefore, it's a ding against your system. Yeah. Rhetorically, that might be a point. But it's not like it's not like a real argument. Thing in the Bible that tells us how we can determine what's him doing it or not him doing it, which is the context of Isaiah 46, is he will say it and he will bring it to pass. Okay, but according to your opening statement and your rebuttal, uh, that's not true, right? Because God can go back on his statements. Absolutely. In 46.10, he says, I will do my good pleasure. His pleasure can change based on what's going on in life as applied to Jeremiah 18 as well. So he says, I will do my good pleasure and his pleasure can change. So I, I don't quite like the response to this question given by the open theists. So basically he's saying, yeah, God goes back on his promises. He does his own good pleasure. Whereas probably the better response would be like, yeah, anytime God changes his mind, it makes sense. God's a person, you know, his character, you know, that he says, if he's going to destroy Nineveh and Nineveh repents, that he's not going to destroy Nineveh anymore. It makes sense to us. It, we know his character and we're not going to hold that against God. And so there's no reason to suspect that uh, the Calvinists have this thing where Anytime God says that he chooses to do something, they think it's arbitrary. Like God elects people. Oh, the election must be arbitrary. He just picked the names out of a hat rather than 
God looked at this person and saw their character and then decided based on their character to pick that person. They always add this arbitrary element. And so in their mind, God will just, there's there's a strong possibility God will just arbitrarily just violate all, all his past character traits and attributes that that uh, we have hard data on. He'll, he'll just go crazy one day. He'll just just lose his mind and violate all his promises. It's something like that. It's like we're we're married for 15 years and then you say you're going to take out the trash and then you didn't. I'm like, oh, I can never trust you again. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's over. Well, maybe <laughs> I had a good reason for not taking out the trash. Yeah, I don't right. know. <laughs> um, so it's it's this weird idea that if God, if if you admit that God goes back on some of his promises within the Bible, he's completely untrustworthy. Whereas the reality is there's a pattern of behavior we see and we can understand of what God does and when God does it. And it's, it's, it's a good character trait that we, we can, we can actually relate to. If you're, you're, you promise to bring your kids to McDonald's and then they just start fighting and throwing fits and, and screaming, you're not going to take them to McDonald's anymore. It doesn't make you some sort of terrible liar that, oh, I can never trust a single thing you say in the future. Like, stop whining. <laughs> stop. I'm not going to bring you to McDonald's if you're just going to go to McDonald's with screaming kids. That's a terrible idea. No, it does not make me a liar if I promise to take my kids to McDonald's and then they start screaming and then I change my mind. I'm not a liar and, it, and I'm still trustworthy despite their crazy standards change at times and he can do what he wants to do. He's God. So in Isaiah 46, 10, where it says declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done saying my cancel, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. Um, when he says declaring the end from the beginning, where do you see the idea of mutability in that? What is define mutability? Like it, it can change. Yeah, can change. I, earlier in it's, Isaiah forty. Okay, I, I would, I would. Here's how I would answer: that the process of declaring something is a change. You go from not declaring something to declaring something. What is being described is God speaking to people, changing. This is all change, and so uh, the whole statements about mutability, whole statements about change, the whole statements about convincing people of facts it's it's all change we see that god declares new things and so things this are is, he's declaring new things and he has th this is a good answer been declaring new things for a long time so this is uh it's not this thing that's been eternally settled uh but it is new things come about yeah so i'd, I'd point out these declarations are not into the endless void it's two people you declare people two people things for practical reasons, it's not an empty, uh, eternal predestination of all things. It's it's just not what's happening in the text, and so the whole things change. Okay, yeah, I I'm not going to necessarily respond to that because. So another thing, Tony Nash does um, his camera. His face is a little too low. You should probably center it or put it up high, like uh, Merrick or Dominic. I think they're fro. He got he got frozen. Uh, oh, uh, there. New for God. There we go. But Tony, you might want to you might want to go back. Oh, oh, sorry. Um. Okay. Thanks. 
Um, so another question I have is from Job uh, 14.5, where it says all of our God knows all of our days and all of our months so that we cannot pass them, which is another quote, another text we use in our opening statement. Uh, how do you understand that? Like, does that mean all of our days are eternally settled on your view? Or would you say that's not true? I can yeah, so a this quick rebuttal and then Dominic can take it because he's done study on this. Um, it would be similar to the Isaiah text. So he says, since our days are determined, the number of the months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. This is specifically about him. But if we take specifics, what about Hezekiah? God says, take up your mat. You shall surely die. These are examples of narrative texts that um, demonstrate that this thing is specifically about Job. The your days are numbered. Your limits are set. It's specifically about Job. Because if that's applied to Hezekiah. Yeah, I, I, I don't actually think that this statement is about Job. I think Bo's wrong here. I'm trying to pull up David Kleins, uh, who wrote the Word Biblical Commentary on Job and uh, what he says about this. It's not a determinist text, as Kleins points out, but it's a general statement about uh, the lifespan of human beings compared to God. And so I'll pull that up while they talk. Is God wrong? Did God forget? If he's eternally settled Hezekiah's days, why say, take up your mat, you're going to die soon? Oh, wait, I'm adding 15 years. So this is specifically about Job. But I'll let Dominic, Dominic's done more studying on this one as well. Right. Also, after the flood, we see that the Lord says that, and this is in Genesis, Genesis 6, uh, 6 verse 3, that man's days shall be 120 years. Essentially, all the people nowadays who are trying to make men immortal and live, you know, a thousand years, that's never going to happen again. Yet God has set our days at about 120 years. People don't live longer than 120 years. And even in that Job, 14.5 verse right before that it says who can bring a clean thing out of the unclean no one who can make man and this is me talking now who can make man live to a thousand years old now no one okay so it seems that that passage in job is not just about job and my reasoning for that is because it's repeated by david so here's david kleins in his word biblical commentary he says uh, the emphasis in this triple description of the prescribed length of human life is not that it has been fixed at a particular span, nor that God himself has fixed it, but that God well knows how brief the span it is. It is so evidently the general reference that it is not expressly stated. Instead, what is stated is the impossibility for the sign span being exceeded. The number of human days is determined, and he quotes the Hebrew, the accent being on the irrevocability of the divine decree. Likewise, the months of human life are known to God, literally with you, in your knowledge or memory, for such a meaning of, a Hebrew word, with, and he says, see Isaiah, Proverbs, Genesis, quoted, days and months together add a total, which is humankind's, quote, limit, prescribed thing. The term is used in verse 13 of a prescribed time and elsewhere of the prescribed limits of the sea. And so this is like a limit, like uh, to pass over a prescribed limit sounds like a legal expression, meaning to transgress a transgress a decree. The exact phrase is not actually attested in the Hebrew Bible. Some play may be made with the idea of any overstepping. The divine prescription of one of a fixed span of life would be like a transgression. So he's basically saying that Hey, God, you know that mankind doesn't live very long, right? 
it's it's not talking about that our days have specific numbers. This is not what David Kleins, who translated the entire book of Job for his biblical commentary on Job, that's not his position. That's that's not what he's talking about here. And Psalm 139, yeah. 16, as the, as the appraise of the congregation of Israel. Yeah, here's what he says. There is no thought here of the lifespan, lifespan of any individual being predetermined, but simply that humankind's allotted span at whatever number of years it may be set is a trifling period. That's the emphasis, the, the briefness of human life. Um, so it says, your eyes saw my substance being yet informed. In your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So it seems like this is not just about Job. This is something that the people of Israel saw as applying to themselves as well. Um, mm -hmm. So what would be your response to that? This does not seem just to be a cap on a, a human age as like its biological limit, but that we have a, our days are determined individually. So what would your response yeah, to that so be? Psalm, Psalm. So th this is why I like to have people like David Kleins in my back pocket. Uh, David Kleins has commentaries on the entire book of Job. Um, he has commentaries on the biblical flood, something that is easy to reference. This is this is a guy who wrote a Hebrew dictionary. And so it's just like, oh, well, David Kleins, a Hebrew scholar, here's what he says about it. He doesn't think it's about determinism. He thinks it's a, just an expression about the briefness of human life, it, that God knows how brief human life is. And so you got something pretty powerful that, that can back it up. I think uh, Enyart does a good job of talking about how this might be connected to Genesis in some way. Um, it's not clear that it's connected to that Genesis length, but it could be. And it's, it's a good explanation of the text, and it kind of fits what Kleins was talking about. And so I, I do like Enyart's uh, response better than Hornick's. 139, I am a pro-life activist and abolitionist. Uh, Psalm 139, this passage is one of my favorites to use in the pro-life. And so the 139, uh, that's, that's what we talked about with Calvin. Calvin has a commentary, and Calvin's a well-known, I don't know, Calvinist. And so he says that this is about fetology. I'll, I'll let Dominic talk, and I'll pull up Calvin uh, while we talk. And it's a, it's a good quote to have in your back pocket. Right? Because this is about fetology. So if we start reading in Psalm 139, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. This is talking about when you're developing in the womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. So when I was made in secret, what's that talking about? That's talking about the reproductive uh, uh, cycle. This is talking about uh, being uh, conceived. I was. Yeah, Dominic's right. Here's Calvin. Calvin says interpreters are not agreed as to the second clause. Some read Yaman in the nominal sense when days were made, the sense being, according to them, all my bones were written in thy book, O God, from the beginning of the world when days were first formed by thee, and when as yet none of them actually existed. The other is the more natural meaning that the different parts of a human body are formed in a succession of time. For in the first germ, there is no arrangement of parts or proportion of members, but it is developed and takes its particular form progressively. Calvin's saying this is about fetology. It's not about predestined days. And so also a good quote because it's like, uh, you're going to disagree with Calvin. You have to at least admit Calvin is a possible 
reading of this text. You, you have to you have to admit, maybe the guy that your whole system of theology is based on, maybe he he might might know what he's talking about here. Maybe not. Made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And so this is about the, your, the baby in the womb when it's first conceived. It doesn't look like there's not a lot of substance until it gets you know, later on in pregnancy. So your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And yeah, depending on what translation, English translation, um, some of them use different terms other than days, uh, parts. Uh, my, my parts were formed when not, you, you saw my parts when they're not yet formed, things like that. And so you, you got to be very careful about how how you're using this text with all these alternative translations out there trying to insist on one over the others is probably it's not not a winning strategy again uh, calvinists only have talking points they don't have proof texts and so this this proof text doesn't quite do what they want it to do and your book they were all written the days fashioned for me that's god he designed this pro this process of pregnancy he designed this process of a baby growing from you know just a you know just right at conception to a full baby and so that that's what this is getting at here well it says when as yet there were none of them um so this does seem to be future tense language if tony nash gets any lower he's going to be off his screen <laughs> his eyes his eyes will just be it'll be like uh home improvement the neighbor guy it's like Heidi ho neighbor which so it's not just about right. talking about not stating what's happening in the current biological mm -hmm. process but god is actually able to make a confident statement about the 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 days that will come so that means that uh, god knows that that person i guess on your view wouldn't be aborted i guess like is that uh, what no, it just means that, that God no, knows it's done as a plan and he knows how babies will grow. God set up that process and then he knows that babies are going to go through that process even before they do. Okay. Merrick, did you want to ask okay. a question? I would yeah, like to sure. Add to that. Nowhere, nowhere uh, I don't know if we'll have time. What, what was that about? Sure, that real quick. Nowhere does it say in that text what you're alluding to. You're alluding to the fact that it says God is. So let me read the text. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So this is poetry. And we can take you guys mentioned didactic versus anthropomorphic versus narrative. This is poetry. And it is David demonstrating how immaculate it is as there were none of them. It is literally a sperm and an egg coming together. Now you got a human being. How immaculate. So this is a good addition that uh, Bo is giving some context. We're, we're talking about Psalms. We're talking about poetry. There might be hyperbole going on here. There might be flowery language. And so it's it's probably not the proof text that they're looking for. An awesome is that. That's what's being portrayed. And nowhere in this scripture does it say, God knows every one of my days as a certainty to the point where I'll die. He knows when I'm dying, I'm going to die. It never states that in this text. It's basically saying how wonderful, it's poetry about how wonderful and awesome God is. He sees me, he knows the hairs on my head. So I do like that Bo pressed forward. Merrick tried to cut him off and yeah. said, hey, Adam, we don't got time for your answer. And Bo just like, <laughs> he, he keeps pushing. He's yeah. just like, I'll just keep, keep, keep talking. It's, it's, it is a good strategy and it works very well. I think Bob Enyart was kind of famous for that, just to just keep talking 
uh, in excess of your allotted time. Yeah. And that was like a, like a common debate. One, one time you did this written debate and they had word limitations. And Bob Edgar did kind of like a chump move where he he said, since since my opponent hasn't used all his words, I'm going to go ahead and write longer posts to make up for the unused word count of my opponent. I'm like, oh no, you can't do that. Oh, that's, that's, uh, oh, that seems like a moral violation. Ethic, maybe. Yeah. As if there was nothing. When I was a sperm and an egg, he knew the process. He put it together sure. and he is an awesome, beautiful working guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a, amen to it, to a lot of that. Um, obviously I, I don't think I would expect it to use some of that open theist philosophical language, but let's move a little bit. So kind of to <laughs> open theist. Uh, it's like, Oh, all you're saying is like philosophy mumble jumbo. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't use any of that. The topic of rogue molecule. I don't want to stick on that too much, but could there be a, a rogue hair fall from the head of one of God's children. Say that he's all about the hair thing. Like God controls our baldness. Like what are you talking about? It's not. Is it what? Really sold on this point. Yeah, he's like I'm going to emphasize this point because <laughs> if like, God controls our baldness, if God controls our baldness, one hair falls off your head. Therefore, eternal exhaustive <laughs> knowledge of the future. If God controls how much hair falls out of you, then the future, obviously, the conclusion is an eternally settled future. Clearly, yeah. I'm I'm converting after this. Yeah, it's it's yeah, a pretty converting. good argument. Yeah. I never heard it before, and now I'm convinced. I always thought barbers are magical. <laughs> now you know why. Hair preservation of the saints. <laughs> yeah god is able to prevent hairs from falling from your head like that yeah th maybe that's why calvinists are so big on beards <laughs> <laughs> they think their beard's gonna get them into heaven because god controls the beard hair it's the sign the sparrow passage not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from my father's will the father is able to prevent sparrows from falling from the sky and the same would be true sure. with a hair from a hair. so again will uh, not a sparrow falls apart from god's will will is a supplied word it doesn't have to be it's not in the original it's it's them guessing what it means to fall apart from god they add will I want this but now, but, but he does can. he like does he ensure that not a single hair from any of the heads of his children will fall without his permission? Like not a single one. Would you say maybe God there's some rogue control hairs? Control our hair, Bible. I would guess that God doesn't care about a lot of hairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh brother, oh brother. I, I I think he does. I think our risen Lord does certainly. Um. What? So there is a hymn which reads. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And so I want to know, would you be like, say we're out preaching and some brothers started, started singing that. Would you be comfortable singing that on the basis of believing that perhaps God wasn't actually the, those who at the time of the crucifixion would, would be born later. It wasn't actually settled all, all of the, the people of God throughout the ages. And therefore it would be like theologically inaccurate. Obviously it's a hymn. You can disagree with it. I'm just wondering 
Yeah. When I'm doing ministry, I don't, I try to present a unified front with the other believers who are out there with me. So, and so th uh, there was a comment in the side chat at one point that talked about this might be a reference to like Luke 21 18. This is uh, Jesus telling his followers, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of his followers were burned to death. So I, 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 I don't, I, I don't think that th that's about preservation of hair being a sign of God's control and salvation and love. I don't, I just, so, some of Jesus's own disciples, it's a lot of the argument he thinks. It is. Yeah. I, a lot of their hairs were damaged. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, if, the, if they're referencing the Luke passage, I don't think that's a good reference. If they're referencing, what is it? The Matthew passage about sparrows and hair. And then conflating them, I also think it's a bad argument. So I sure. wouldn't, you know, bring up this giant theology discussion to unbelievers. Yeah, but but like, so I'm talking about like the the personality, right? So uh, Paul says, "The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me." And so you kind of brought up the aspect of, well, you know, the, the propitiation for our sins. <laughs> GMW says Piper said God will move your hair to the side when they cut your head off. That. That sounds like a, a typical Christian thing to do to try to make a prophecy come true. Like uh, Jesus said, none of their hair would be damaged. He didn't say anything about them not dying. And so when they did die, none of their hair was damaged. That that's, that's, I, I, I could see Christians doing that. Like, that. like tech, technically, technically. None of their, they had a full head of hair when in, <laughs> in the funeral, that their body was mauled by lions, but the lions didn't get to their hair part. What historical evidence do I have of that? Well, it says it that none of their hair is going to be harmed, so that must have been what how that turned out. Oh man! Oh, he says, yeah, he did. What he did? What that Piper actually said that? Oh, holy buckets! What? Oh, that's insane. Uh, that would be an interesting clip. <laughs> the next <laughs> I intro. thought it was a joke. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a joke. I thought he was joking. Yeah, there's a saying like, if you harm a hair on her head, then I'm going to knock you out or something. Yeah. So that's... It's, like, it's just like an expression. Yeah. Oh, Comment. oh, this, this hurts. This, <laughs> this hurts so much. <laughs> Oh, well, John Piper, what are you doing, Fred? But not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, huh. right? And I agree with that, and I affirm that, but I'm wondering what <laughs> okay, about well. that cuts against the idea that there's also this personal aspect where he bore our sins in his body. What's that thing where, like, the real world is not, like, indistinguishable from parody? It's like, like real things that people, oh, you just don't know it's a joke. On that tree, and, and can that truly be affirmed by you guys or, or would you interpret those very clearly doctrinal texts we would all agree that it's doctrine it's not narrative uh perhaps in a, in, a, in a different fashion yeah i think that god what you were saying in your opening statement about his sacrifice is enough to pay for the sins of the entire world even people who have not been born yet i think of course his blood does have the power to cover even those sins 
Mm -hmm. But but did Christ go to that cross with the intention of saving particular people? I, I'm not making a Calvinist argument here. I'm making a Paul yeah, says he died. Let me for answer me. that. He said, yeah, yeah go okay, ahead. let me answer that. Um, second Peter two, uh, it mentions false teachers. And, and this is exactly what it says. It says, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon destruction to themselves. So at the end of this chapter, it reveals to us that these false teachers end up in hell. Jesus has bought them. They're denying the Lord that bought them. Whether God knows about them or not, they're all purchased. I believe everyone's purchased with the blood of Christ. And these people deny the master that bought them. And that's a quick so, answer. So this is a good counter argument. Uh, so Merrick needs there to be a list of sins. And all these sins are bought off by Jesus in the cross act. They all pre-exist or something like that. And so Bo is pointing out that uh, this is a general buying off of sins. This is a sacrifice once for everyone in all circumstances. And it even covers non-christians people who reject them of course if you reject the free gift you don't get the gift but there's they're still bought and paid for it's a general buying off but merrick kaiser he really needs there to be some sort of list of sins in the ether with a list of demerits that needs to be paid off to the specific amount it's it's a it's a weird idea yeah. question Sure. So, so you said whether he knows them or not, but then you said he bought them. So, so are you saying Christ goes yes. to the cross to buy people that he doesn't know or doesn't know of? Not, not in the he, salvific yeah. no sense at that point because they don't exist yet, obviously. Oh, Bo, are you muted? Yeah, Bo, you're muted. Bo, I think okay. you're. I think you're muted, Bo. Yeah, but yeah. So I have, I'll let uh, I have no problem. Yeah, I have no problem saying that God, uh, he, you know, gave his sacrifice of his sin for people who he wasn't thinking about at the time. Of course, he was thinking about everyone who was currently alive at the time. There was a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, running around. Yeah, so that's that's a weird statement. Uh, Jesus, who doesn't have omniscience has everyone alive at that time in his mind by name and visual image of their face in his mind as he's dying i uh, yeah that's i'm not sure if that's what uh Enyart was claiming or saying but it doesn't doesn't sound warranted on the world when jesus was being yeah so uh, sacrificed so you think perhaps is Perhaps his sacrifice was more valuable to those who are currently alive. Like I'm, I'm really trying to understand the the text, and even Bo quoted quoted this is these false prophets who the Lord bought, right? That that's personal language, even in the Greek. If you look, it's very personal language. Again, there's tons of other citations. So so can Christ look at me and say because you you portrayed it kind of well? It's all yeah. about me, me, me. I, as if it's some like humanistic inclination, but in reality, the fact that he had to die for me, me, me is really bad on my end. So can Christ, right, and right. I'll go to a different line of reasoning. Can he look at me and say, okay, so if you're a Calvinist and uh, you're watching this debate and they focus and your side is focusing their attention on this line of questioning, do you think, do you feel like this is a good strategy or bad strategy for their time usage? Is it all they have? Well, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's not strong points. Uh, like, yeah, I'm trying to 
it's almost like he can't make sense of how open theism could be true if th these ideas of his aren't true. Right. But if, if he's trying to make a positive case for Calvinism, it's weird to spend your time on weird atonement like, issues. Yeah, like it doesn't even like matter. <laughs> like do Calvinists, do they watch it and say, this is a, this is a great point. worthwhile expenditure of your limited debate time to go down this line of reasoning so that that's that's it's weird to me so i i think it's idiosyncratic like there's a couple people who really care about atonement things and so they really need their narrative of, of atonement to be true and so they're gonna spend their time talking about these atonement things even though most people will be like what what's going on <laughs> what's happening what is, is this going somewhere? Does this do something? Is Did he prove that this thing is a thing? I don't get if they think, like, if God is all-powerful, why couldn't he forgive all sins for all people, even if he doesn't know what they are? Yeah, and he points out that, uh, uh, Hornick points out in our comments that Kaiser agrees that he purchased the salvation of the false prophets, which is contradiction to limited atonement. Limited atonement is the idea that Jesus only died for the elect and not for the non-elect. And that, um, like, if Jesus had died for the non-elect, then his he wanted something that he did not get, right? So it's a failure. That uh, the common Calvinist talking point is Jesus saved everyone he died for. He didn't fail in saving people. And so if he's buying off with his death people that he fails to save, that that goes against their theology of yeah. what God must be like. God can't fail. Right. He can't God can't lose a wrestling match. Right? Yeah. And so um yeah, Kaiser's not a typical Calvinist in that sense. What about you? Yeah, my my brother, if he has a song, Warren writes, they often run to atonement when debating open theism. It's due to fear, or maybe they just they don't have actual arguments. Maybe yeah. it's just like desperation. Maybe that's they only know what to talk about. Yeah, they don't want to talk about their own proof text, and they don't want to talk about the open theist proof text. So maybe changing the debate subject, it, maybe it's a good strategy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe it's a good strategy. Okay, so may maybe they're doing what they should in this debate is not debating the issues at hand and then sidetracking and talking about other, other things. Maybe maybe that's their best strategy here. I'm changing my mind. Maybe these guys are geniuses. I will be good friends with his son, even though I don't know who he is right now. And I will have a personal relationship with his son, just like how Jesus, he can have a personal relationship with people who don't even, uh, yeah, he knows so he will if, have a personal relationship with people who don't even exist. Yet. If, if your, if your brother take your brother's son who doesn't exist yet, if he takes a bunch of loans out at a bank, can you pay for all of those loans right now without ever knowing how much they will be? Yeah. So like I could sacrifice for my kids, even though my kids don't exist yet. Um, like, uh, like for example, in, you, you could save yourself for your future spouse, even though that spouse doesn't exist yet. These are things you can do, even though you don't have specific people in mind. Uh, American soldiers can die for America's freedoms, even without conceptualizing 
everyone that they're they're fighting for, you know, things like that. Um, this is this is this is normal ways that people speak, and the Calvinist needs to deny it because they need a, some sort of talking point. They really need their atonement theory to be their very specific thing. That's not obvious in the text. The Christ's blood can pay that. for any loan. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, well, let, absolutely. Actually, but but it says me, ours. It says ours, right? Yeah. yeah, I need to press you guys on this a little bit because the language of the scripture is a little bit more familial where it says our sins, the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Yeah, because he's talking to people. It's a letter. Christ died for our sins. He's talking to people. Yeah, it's our sins. Sin itself is an act it's a it's an act against God, right? It's not some created substance that exists somewhere and then God puts it on. So the, here's where they're denying the metaphysics of sin. And I would agree with them that sin is a violation of God or others. And it's not a metaphysical substance. But then they want like a list of sins somewhere in the ether that's being nailed to the cross that's getting paid off by line item invoice. I, I don't think I don't think that those two things are compatible. That there's this divine ether list and sin isn't metaphysics. Christ, it's actually an act that we do to transgress God's will. So how is God placing acts which transgress his will on Christ to pay for them for people that don't even exist? And God doesn't know they'll exist. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would. I, go, go ahead. I don't think I don't think this comes up in scripture there. You might have an answer for us um, that you're but I just I don't think that kind of stuff comes up in scripture. There's some questions that, that we might have that there's not really like a scriptural answer. I'm not going to extrapolate. And so that's why I'm not like making answers. I'm using just what the scriptures say. So uh, also, I can tell you what I think, <laughs> but I'm not I don't have like a yeah, specific verse I want right. to point to. You know what I'm saying? Also, it's worth pointing out that, you know, whether or not Christ knew about individual sins you know, before they happened, individual people before uh, they existed. That does not disprove the existence of other unsettled events. Okay, but it would suggest that God would eternal would know every single person that would exist and what sins they would commit. Yeah, so this is probably going to be their strongest evidence if they could, <laughs> if they could somehow argue that the Bible <laughs> has this idea that all sins that are ever going to be committed has some sort of eternal list in the ether. You could say, Hey, this, this kind of suggests that all things are faded and all things must take place. And, you know, you got the reverse causation type problems going on that uh, if these sins are known, can they be averted? Things like that. And it just, if this list exists somewhere, it's very problematic to normal open theism for those reasons that it implies fatalistic operation in some sense of the universe. And so, but here's the problem. The Bible doesn't talk. It's just like a complete fabrication of how atonement works. And they just really need it to be true because they really need some evidence. So you're, 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 Amounts of unsettled events is like basically almost zero. And practically, open theism is basically moot at that point because God basically knows. Uh, except for the fact that oh, someone could argue that uh, once the kingdom's instituted, there's no sin. And so, and since time is infinite, 
that that the period you're talking about is very minute in scale to overall human history. And so that the most you could prove is fatalistic determination for this small segment in history, which, so it doesn't quite prove his point. It's evidence towards his point. It's evidence against normal understandings of open theism. But yeah, it, it doesn't, you, you don't, you don't go, uh, God knows a list of everything that's ever going to happen. Therefore, the future, every single detail is eternally settled uh, for all time, even when there's no sins. Uh, it's, it, it's a stretch. You, you could get there, but, and normal people might jump to that conclusion. So if I came to you and said, all the sins that you're ever going to commit is on this piece of paper, you're going to commit them. Like, do you anymore believe in free will? No. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, That's I'm just point. like, a, I'm, a, I'm a robot, I guess. Right. I, I feel like things feel kind of meaningless at that point. Yeah, so they, they say, you're going to lie tomorrow at 2 o'clock, and then 2 o'clock rolls around, and then you lie. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. my knowledge of this event happening cannot even subvert this happening. It's like, I'm not... You're just you playing, feel, you're like an actor... Not even a a, yeah, like, like a programmed robot. It's like I can't do anything. It's like you can't even choose to believe in God. Yeah, it's at that like point, it's like I'm not a person. Right. I, I don't have volition. And I don't think God wants that. He wants people to choose him. Right. I uh, in fact God spends a lot of effort and frustration trying to get people to choose him. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, what more do I need to do to you guys? You guys are so stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's it's like, like the huge problem is. Yeah, if, if, if human beings worked like that in which we had a blueprint that are were input output and God had access to all these things and like classical theism, he has access to that blueprint. He should know what strings to pull to get us to right. choose him. But the thing is, in the Bible, he doesn't. He doesn't have these blueprints. We don't operate like that. He's frustrated by us. He tries to figure out how man operates. Man struggles with God. That's what Israel means. Uh, struggling with God. That's the entire story of the Bible. Is God like, what the heck are these guys? What are they doing? How do I reach them? How do I get through to them? And this back and forth action. And so um, I don't think this metaphysical model that they're trying to use for atonement is something that the biblical authors consider. You know, I was, I was, it doesn't meet yeah. what they, they, they're, they're talking about. I think it's very contrived literally almost every single thing at that point all of your acts god knows i mean what practical benefit does god not knowing the like not knowing the future actually have an open theism if you can so did you hear what he just said there what practical benefit does god not knowing the future like give you he, he's arguing practicality again if your view doesn't have practical uh meaning then your view is false apparently it's an argument from consequences or argument from implication it's it's not a real argument if your view is not practical then your view is false you never know if he knows anything you do or not i guess is my question and then it assumes the motivation he's saying you guys are only open theists because open theism gives some sort of practical benefit to your day-to-day -day lives this is not this is not a truly held ideologically based belief uh, you're getting something out of this He's assuming the motivations. He's assuming it into his question. 
and it doesn't seem to be caught by uh, Dominic or Bo in this back and forth that that's what they're doing. They're what, being. What do you think the benefit would be, or do you think he would think? Well, he he's saying that the open theist gets some sort of uh, like what is it that we get? Yeah, he's asking them. Oh, okay. <clears throat> he's saying what what practical benefit do you get from this belief? As if Dominic and Bo are motivated by practical benefits. Okay. He's this is a very uh, it's it's kind of a sleazy way, language, a sleazy yeah. question, mm-hmm. and because it it ba- paints them as being disingenuous actors. Right. Yeah, I guess I, we're just coming from such a different, uh, like these are two very different systems. I right. think you're asking, how can Christ die for things he doesn't know? Is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's making a yeah. sacrifice. Well, even from the father's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Who's accepting the sacrifice to forgive us for those sins. Yeah. How does the father accept the sacrifice for sins that he doesn't even know will occur? Yeah. So going back to your analogy about my brother taking out a bunch of loans, if I am a vast billionaire, 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 I have all this money, I can make a fund and not not even tell my brother's son about it and just say this fund is for if he ever is going to go into debt, this will cover that debt. And so in the same way, Christ's blood, it's powerful enough. There's, you know, enough of it. There's no limitation on it. It can cover even future, uh, even future sins, even when they haven't been they haven't been brought into reality yet. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I, I guess we can move on to a different topic. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one of the, th- one of the things. Uh, There's one rhetorical thing you could do is kind of like ask a question back. You're like, do you think that uh, Christ's blood could cover infinite oh, amount yeah. of sins? Make them respond to it. And then they, they, they have to be like. No, I can't. Well, yeah, <laughs> if they if they're normal Calvinists, they'll say it could, but it didn't. He died for a specific amount, and that's all it covers. So, uh, who does it? I think it's James White or someone who says uh, Jesus Christ could have covered the sins of a million different planets and a million different uh, species or something like that. Uh, but he died only for the elect, and so they'll do this little caveat thing that makes them sound like super spiritual like yes this blood is the ultimate payment but it was limited to only these things mm-hmm. so that, that that that's how they try to have their cake and eat it too I mean, you would think like if that were true it would be more prominent in the bible too right yeah it's it not just relegated to paul right. <laughs> one author we were up in our opening statements the notion of how to test whether a prophet's true or false so we see in yeah. Deuteronomy 18, God says that uh, we can know one way a, a prophet is false or not is if, if they say something will come to pass and then it doesn't. And God says if they say something will come to pass and it doesn't, they speak with presumption, which is a sin. Mm-hmm. So on your yeah. view, it seems like you're arguing in your opening statement that God unequivocally, unconditionally says things will happen. And then they don't, yes. which means by God's own criteria, he would be committing a sin of presumption. Is that correct? Uh, Jonah as well should have been stoned by your standard. Uh, Just because something's said and it doesn't happen and God changes his mind on that or relents his judgment doesn't mean that it's a false prophecy. Um, All prophecies, I would say most prophecies have an element of contention in there or contingency in there. So Jonah, by the Deuteronomy 18 standard, 
you know, that shouldn't be applied in this way because Jonah himself would have been stoned by Nineveh and all the other Jeremiah should have been stoned. Um, Isaiah should have been stoned. So things that I like that he does, uh, he brings it to Jonah and he says, hey, listen, you don't believe your standard. Uh, when you run across normal things like Jonah, you just use a common sense standard and your common sense standard goes out when you're trying to apply the rules to open theism. Yeah, I know I'm not I'm not a liar. If I say lying is bad to my kids, I say never lie to me. And uh, then I, I tell them I'm going to take them to McDonald's and they cry and whine. I say, I'm not taking you to McDonald's anymore. It's not like I'm violating my own standard. It's not it's not a lie. It's it's I'm changing based on the circumstances and it makes sense to people, third party observers. And so they look at the Bible, they see if this, then this, and they say, oh, this is a metaphysical rule in the ether. It must operate hard and fast in all circumstances. It doesn't have leeway. You can't apply common sense. And uh, therefore, you're wrong and I'm right, even though I don't even apply the same standard. No, no, all these people that say things. Um, God should have been stoned because he said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. That doesn't apply to God or true prophecies because God truly was saying, Hezekiah, you will die. Then Hezekiah prays and God adds 15 well, years. My, it's not that well, it's a false it, prophecy. So, it was true at the time. Well, our position, and I didn't get to get to this in my part, but I actually mm -hmm. think Jeremiah 18 is actually in our favor here because there are certain statements where God states that are conditional, right? There are certain things he states that are conditional, not unconditional. So in the cases of... Jonah, for example, when God says he will destroy them, that's on the basis that they don't repent because he promised in Jeremiah 18, if a nation repents, he won't destroy it. Right. So God's right. conditional. Is you, you missed it. You missed it when I played the clip of Sonic. Oh, OK. I, I'll just it. I'll go just go forward to it. I yeah. put Sonic expecting and then there's a bunch of Sonic pregnancy videos. What? Oh. I'm like, okay, uh, what is that? Oh, that's not what we're looking for. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll go to uh, that. The time for talking is. I know exactly what to do. I was not expecting that, but I was expecting not to expect something, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are certain yeah, the joke is it's, it's a cope, and everyone knows it's a cope, and it's not accurate. And he, you don't get to salvage it by just saying, "Oh, I was expecting not to expect something, so yeah. I, uh, I actually, actually expected right. what yeah. the, what happened." Statements where God states that are conditional, right? There are certain things He states that are conditional, not unconditional. So, in the cases of Jonah, for example. When God says he will destroy them, that's on the basis that they don't repent because he promised in Jeremiah 18, if a nation repents, he won't destroy it. Right. So God's right. conditional. Is his only okay. <laughs> he, he should, he should correct. Dominic should have jumped in right there and corrected him about the language. He didn't say he, pro he would, he promised not to destroy it. He promised he wouldn't do what he thought to do. And that's, I would, I would instantly correct him on that because then it illustrates that they're not even applying their proof text. Uh, as it's written, they're, they're changing the language in a way that benefits themselves and doesn't undermine their point. Conditionals so can only exist if there's no literal change of mind that can occur if he's simply sticking to a promise. 
Right. So if God has an underlying principle about how he is going to change his mind, and he says, this is how I'm going to change my mind in all these situations. And then God goes through that and he does change his mind according to that principle. That underlying principle doesn't change. But to say, oh, here, just say and the principle is that he will change his mind. It's it's in the it's in the if then else. He will change his mind. He's, he's describing how he'll change his mind. He changes his mind. It's within the formula. It doesn't work if 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 he doesn't change his mind. You can't. It's in there. So I, I think this is one of the sillier. Uh, what what kind of uh, strategy is this? Just wordplay, semantics that um, the Calvinists are going through to try to wiggle out of pretty obvious, clear language about God changing his mind. Oh, God said that if things change, then he'll change his mind. And said because he said he'll change his mind, he didn't actually change his mind. Look at God, he's changing his mind. That's an argument that, you know, it's all been the same all along. That just, that falls flat. Well, yeah, no, like that shows it's non-literal. It's an analogous way of speaking. If I say, if I say to my kid, hey, if you don't put, if, if they steal the cookie and I said. I, I like their analogies that they use because their analogies usually play against them. Like it shows that like nobody talks like this and nobody thinks like this. I'm going to punish you, but I'll change my mind about punishing you if you put the cookie back in the jar. Well, there's no real literal change of mind that's occurring by going with a other stated intention based on a condition being fulfilled. Okay. What do you think about his analogy? He's jumping through hoops. I don't know. Okay. So his analogy is um, the kid takes a cookie and you say, I'm going to punish you unless you put it back. And then the kid puts it back. There's no change of mind. No, he says, I will punish punish you. Or so I won't punish you if you put it back. He says, uh, I will punish you, but I won't punish you if you put it back. Then the kid puts it back. And so then he never changed his mind. Because it was the other But he, but he does because you're right. you're 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 gonna punish was... him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Okay. Yeah, so like normal people would say that's a change of mind that you're going to punish them. And then that kid does it. And then you change your mind. You're not going to punish them anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know. So yes, God yeah, the problem by going on the bait, by acting on the basis of a condition being met. And so that's the point we're yeah, making so is the, that when God promises, it's like a good why question. Why would he even make a condition if he already knew the outcome? Right. Yeah. Conditionals are meaningless in that sense. It's like, you, you know that your computer's random number is going to be like uh, 47. It's not really random. You know that that's what's going to land on. And you make conditionals. You're writing code. You're like, <laughs> if the number is 10, then this will occur. If the number is 30, then you, you know goofy. it's 47. It's it's just hard programmed into the code that's 47. Like, it, what are you doing? It almost paints God like a game player or something. Yeah, like, like it, he's building conditionals to things that could never materialize. Right. And for what purpose? To lie to Just us. To like mess with people. Like to mess with people. He's <laughs> like, well, if you do this, knowing full well mm -hmm. that they're they're fated not to, that right. there's no possible way they could do that. If you do this, then this will happen. Ah, mm -hmm. ah. <laughs> it's all fake. It's all uh, Calvinists. They don't believe their own theology. They don't actually believe God operates like this. They they don't apply this to their normal life. Uh, maybe, maybe some do. My my brother's friend in college, who was making life decisions based on how the apple fell, 
He's going to drop an apple and see where it rolls. And that's how he would determine what majors to take because he believed God controls all things. And then my brother asked him, you should drop the apple again. He's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) To forgive nations when they repent, God's not actually changing his mind by sticking to his promise. I think there's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, the problem, the the problem is if we look the warning. Directly, here, here, I'm going to jump in here. The problem is you if go, we look directly go, at go. Jeremiah. The, the problem is if we look directly at Jeremiah, it says the opposite. It says the instant I speak concerning a there nation, concerning a kingdom. There we go. Fuck up, yada yada yada. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will re- repent of the disaster that I thought to bring oh, upon it. This is about. Yeah, look at that. Uh, t- uh, he does the thought. Yep. He points to the head. And so visual imagery for the yeah, listener. Was, that was really well spoken too. Yes. And he emphasized it. Uh, he points it out, emphasizes it, illustrates like, it with emotion. Took charge of the conversation. Yeah. He yeah. just started talking uh, really authoritatively. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thoughts. This yeah. is giving us a peek inside the mind of God. And right. so God right. says, I, I repent. I changed my mind. I'm not doing that, which I thought I'm going to do. And then you guys are saying, oh, you, you are. You did think that. And so that no, no, he, he did he did think that if that nation right if that that key clause if no. that the nation, underlying that principle he believed he believed the underlying principle all along that never changed I agree with you that that underlying principle never changes but the underlying principle saying this is how I'm going to change uh, that is uh, the change it is a real change because God says here's my underlying principle. For how I'm going to change, and then he follows that underlying principle. He goes, yeah, if so, yeah. If someone, yeah, that's just a weird analogous <laughs> way of speaking. And even in the human example I gave you, it, it proves that. If someone said, uh, "Heidi ho, neighbors," <laughs> <laughs> I've laughed about that like three times. <laughs> they're not going to punish. They're going to change their mind about punishing you if you change your action. They're not actually creating a literal change of state. They're simply going with an intention they said they would go with. They, they so are. That, the they point. are. If, they, yeah, if so a no parent intends to reward his child and then that child disobeys, that yeah. parent's intention changes. Yeah. Hardick yeah. writes, they should just agree that contingencies go against their argument. Why, why would they do that? that? That's not a good debate strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's not. But They're it's playing true. 40 chess here. <laughs> No, because he, the, I'm that, talking that, about these scenario I gave yeah. specifically. Uh, their winning strategy is confuse, conflate, <laughs> play semantics. <laughs> their winning strategy is not ceding ground and acknowledging arguments and dealing with verses. That's not the winning strategy for them. It's like that that meme of the board where there's like all these papers and like the string connecting all the <laughs> yeah, papers. Like... Yeah, it's like ah, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Their winning strategy is confusion <laughs> and conflation. This is this. And that's if you that. throw out enough words, no one will follow what's happening and maybe you can win. Like a Zerg rush. Zerg rush strategy. I'm talking about the scenario I gave specifically, right? In that instance, so, there is a let, let me phrase it. Let me phrase it as a question. Sorry, Marlon, but I think we're having a good discussion, so it's super cordial. Appreciate it. Yeah. If if the parent says, "If you do X, I'll do Y. If you do Z, I'll do B or whatever," what the change that? But if the B is, I'll change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> then they change their mind. Yeah. Like like if it's built into the formula, and if you fill in one of those variables with "I'll change my mind." then they will in fact change their mind 
if they follow the formula. It's a change of mind. You just don't you don't get to undo it. That that's what's so silly about this. Yeah. It's like if you tell your kids that uh, under certain circumstances you're going to change your mind about what you're planning to do and what you think you're going to do, what you said you're going to do, then you're not actually changing your mind when those things occur. It's a crazy argument. It's just nuts. It's so, and it's also like, why if it's all faded? Yeah. Back to the why. It, it's absolute it's bonkers. Just, yeah. It is that the change is in <sighs> the son. It's not in the parent because the parent already stated all of all of all the conditions, whatever happens, it's already stated. So where is the change in the parent? Where's the change in God? Because all I see textually, narratively, and I, I've read these. All I think about is Jim Carrey going to be being like, "Well, I was expecting not to, or, or, <laughs> yeah. to, to see something unexpected." So, uh, I was expecting. so I, I win this one. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, prophets crazy in our fight against abortion. I love Jeremiah. Where is the change in God, though? The change is in. Yeah, the problem. The, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah you know, the, so the I would say, hey, hey, Merrick, did God finish the pot that he first set out to do in the opening uh, parable? Like, like there's an illusion. Uh, Jeremiah's brought down to the potter's house, and he's given an example of how God operates, and then it's explained. So they're going over the explanation right now, but go back to what they're explaining. Did the potter finish the, the vessel that he originally set out to do? Uh, the answer is no. He made it into something else. There's the change. It's right there. It's in the story. And it's described in the explanation twice. Problem so, yeah, is God says, question. this is my intention from the beginning. He says, if I intend to bless a nation and then they sin against me, I will no longer bless them. He says, this is the original intention, but then here's how the future is changeable. Yeah, but that's, that's yeah, going back to the yeah. example. The change is in the, the person's not in God. Right, so God doesn't just say... So you got to wonder if these guys actually believe the things they're saying. Have they thought about the things they're saying? Or are they just regurgitating words that they heard someone say? I I don't think they conceptually understand their argument. Who are they? I don't know who they are. Are they well-known? Are they established? Uh, nobody knows who Tony Nash is. I know Merrick a little bit. I think he's Facebook friends with me. Oh, okay. And so uh, he he does some uh, street preaching or something. Yeah, I I don't know. This this is not like these are not like famous not like people super... debating. Okay, got it. Dominic Enyart took over his dad's uh, radio show, right. and so uh, he's he's probably the most famous I'm guy here. Familiar with Enyart? Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Just a little, yeah. Right. You know. If this, then this, if this, then this. He says, I intend to do this unless X and then that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The, the change is still in the, in the persons. Yeah, because then X Except happened and then said, he did. Like, Tony's getting lower and lower. Sit what up, he Tony. Said, he, says, yeah. he says, I will not do that which I thought I would do. This is inside the mind yes. of God. Yes, what? But, uh, Dominic. <laughs> Hello, neighbor. Heidi ho. <laughs> Like, don't you see what I thought I would do is in reference to if that nation. And I, I've looked at the Hebrew and I, I got my friend at the Concordia Seminary to look at the Hebrew for me. That, that um, is uh, So uh, language arguments are like the worst arguments. It's like, I know a guy who knows Hebrew and he said this about this verse. It's like language is just so dang flexible. 
um, that you could read any verse multiple different ways. And it's not like, it's not like knowing the original language is going to bring you to solid conclusions about what it says. It'll, it'll tell you some possibilities, but it's not like I know the original language. And so the, like, just even think about English. How well does that work? I know English. And so this law says this thing specifically, and there's no other meanings, right? Uh, does, does, is that going to work in the legal world? 